2: This is a more-than-just podcast production.
3: Welcome to SpotCast, Season 5, Episode 6. My name is Tim Mitra. I am in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Jonathan Kuline in Mississauga, Ontario. Hello there, kids. I also have on the line, from Seattle, Washington, Jami Lopez, Jr. How's it going? The one, the only, well, no, I can't be. Are we talking about Jaime or Seattle? Well, yeah, he can't be be the only one if he's a junior, right? He's like the second one. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? All right. So let's start off with some fact check. Um, I don't, don't think we were talking about patience, but I think what I was getting confused by is patience is the name of the town in Resident Alien. But we were talking about another P word last week. Do you remember what that was? Very similar to patience. Anyway, moving on. Uh I was talking about the, the legend of the seed something or other ep- the Doctor Who episode uh which was the second episode this year twenty twenty two and that was called The Legend of the Sea Devils and it was eh, it was okay. That was that came out on April seventeenth, twenty twenty two, which was an odd timing, um, because the what used to be the holiday special has moved to, to January first in the case of Jodie Whittaker's uh, tenure. And um, The Eve of the Daleks was aired on January 1st, 2022. That was a really good one. And the the Flux uh, arc, story arc, went from, on season 13, went from episode one to episode six. And that was from October 31st, 2021 to December 5th, 2021. Which is why I thought that this episode that came out last week was going to be the first of the series. But was I wrong? Dun, dun, dun. Turns out, and actually, that was the, actually, I think it was the 100th, the 100th anniversary of, of BBC, but I think it's it's a significant um episode for the Doctor Who series, too. Now I'm going to go and fact-check that one. But um, the Doctor Who 60th anniversary special is coming out November 23rd. Sorry, November 2023. And, and that um, November twenty twenty three, like a year from now, or coming out? Yeah, a year from now, 2023. They're November telling 2023. us a year ahead that they're going to have a Halloween or a an anniversary special? Not just that. Well, no, it actually is the sixth anniversary, but not just that. There is no Doctor Who until
4: then. Yeah, I saw the commercial and it says coming in 2023. I thought for some reason they meant like January, but yeah. Well, like I said, it's odd because last
3: last year and previous seasons, you know, it was always a fall show. Like, it would be October to December, and then they would have some sort of holiday special, right? Mm-hmm. I get that they're delayed because of COVID and all kinds of other stuff. And, and um, did you—so, I think we're going to talk about Doctor Who in a, in a bit, but have, did you guys get a chance to watch the episode before yep. I spoil it? I did. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. okay, cool. We'll talk about it a bit later, but, but yeah, we have a couple of stories coming up about Doctor Who so we'll leave that for later but yeah just stay tuned folks stay tuned remind me to when
2: we do end up talking about it remind me to interject with my what is the most cynical take on what happens in that episode because I think it's probably it's probably true, but we don't
3: need to talk about it now. We'll we'll talk about it then, as a There's teaser. There's lots lots of things like why couldn't Matt Smith just grab a dragon and show up for five minutes? <laughs> you know, but that's beside the point. Beside what? okay, we'll, we'll we'll move on because there were two doctors. You know, were actually three doctors missing yeah. in my opinion. One one we know is never coming back, nope. or, or even though he said he'd like to come back. I don't know. And the other two, who knows? Anyway. We digress. But Jonathan, before we move
4: on, has some uh, fact check as well. Yeah, just a quick one. So we were talking about the, uh, we were doing our chat about Andor episode 7, and there's that great scene that we really liked, the, the cinematography and the sets, when they have this dressed-up person walking through and then meeting with Kel. I did not recognize it at the time, but I found online people were saying that that was actually Luthen's assistant, Clea. So... She must have like the one that was the, selling like, in the shop. Yeah, the one that works in the shop with them. Oh, she was the one that went really? to Kel and said, "Go kill Cassian." I did not recognize her because she looked like fancier, dressed more, dressed up. I guess I just didn't put two and two together yeah. on that one. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, that—that's who that was. So yeah. So it was unclear if she was acting on orders from from Luthen. It seems unlikely. Maybe she's just a more cautious member of the rebels wanting to tie up loose ends and make sure that it doesn't get back to her and loosen. But yeah, interesting. Yeah. I, th- I also thought she was sort of the hapless assistant, but obviously she must be in the know if she's working with him, right? Yeah. I mm-hmm. never got the impression she was hapless. I just got the impression she was um, not as connected as he is. Obviously he's, he's, you know, high up and she's sort of helping, but it seems like she's got a, yeah. her own kind of
3: agenda going on. Well, and so does he, I mean, he obviously has, he's a loose cannon because, you know, in, in uh, Mon Moth has, you know, questioned his, tactics from time to time too right yeah and he's it seems like he's driving the situation as opposed to Mohan mothma right she's the money man i think all righty
4: all right we'll we'll move on to our headlines and guess what john's up again yeah we uh we got a little marvel this week we're going to talk about two trailers that dropped uh both really interesting and and good stuff to talk about so the first thing that dropped this week was the Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania trailer, a much more fulsome trailer that uh, sort of showed, yeah, like lots of little plot beats, characters, a little more Kang. We got, uh, you know, obviously the the original Ant-Man and the Wasp in there as well, and we see that they're getting sucked into the Quantum Zone, uh, where, of course, um, uh, the original Wasp and, and, uh, and our Ant-Man have spent time. And so, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a, Pretty, pretty sprawling, and I mean, a very visually interesting trailer. What, uh, what did you guys think? What were your first impressions of Ant Man and the Wasp: Quantum Mania?
3: It looked interesting, you know. All, it looked like all the the people are, are back, except for I think it was one extra person, like a dollar a daughter, right? Yeah, that's that's Scott's uh, daughter from his first marriage, Cassie. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, it looked good.
2: Interesting. Who knows? Yeah, kind of interesting that it seems like it's setting up kang to be a bit more um involved in this one and he's uh nicely on the
4: poster too if you look at the movie poster mm-hmm. yeah he looks much more like the kang the conqueror that we're used to from the comic books the you know this sort of futuristic warlord type as opposed to the sort of mysterious stranger we got at the end of loki right yeah yeah which was the the one who remains is that who he was in that uh, iteration yeah yeah But it looked, uh, yeah, it looked really interesting. I think uh, visually, I think it's going to be an interesting one, given that, you know, obviously when you're doing a story set in, you know, the microscopic or beyond microscopic quantum zone, you know, it lends yourself to real creativity. They can go full Dr. Seuss on the whole thing and just kind of come up with anything they want visually and and, uh, use their imaginations. It looks like they've definitely gone down that road because it's pretty fantastical looking um Mm -hmm. but yeah it'll be interesting to see if this one really is you know we've been kind of waiting since we got that first appearance of Kang for Kang to become more of a real player and we know that obviously we're going to get the Kang dynasty as as the Avengers movie they've already announced that that's the subtitle so we know that Kang's going to be a big player in the in the MCU I think it'll be interesting to see if Kang can really sort of make his mark on this story and uh, makes you wonder what what will come of all this. Yeah, definitely. Does seem like it'll keep the humor
2: angle that's associated with Ant Man, with the uh, "thank you, Spider Man" kind of thing, of not getting <laughs> any respect. Yeah,
4: yeah, absolutely. And the other trailer we got this week was uh, for Disney Plus's Guardians of the Galaxy Holiday Special. They had announced this a while back. We knew we were getting it, but really didn't have a sense of what exactly it was going to be. And it looks like a heck of a lot of fun. Uh, you know. The the trailer kind of has a good time, you know. The the crew decides to take it upon themselves to cheer up uh, Chris Pratt's Star Lord because he's still sad about losing Gamora, and so uh, Mantis and Drax go to Earth on a mission to bring the legendary warrior Kevin Bacon back to give to him as a Christmas gift. Uh, it looks silly and fun, and and all the things that we like best when Guardians of the Galaxy's on, right?
3: Yeah, and so is this like a single special
4: episode that's yeah. going to be on Disney? Yeah, just supposed to be a special, something as a one-off that they you know mix throw into the mix, but a uh, not 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 nothing. I mean, we we talk about how they've pulled some of the the television or the the movie stars into the television universe. You know, Jeremy Renner and and um, you know oh, what's his name, Loki, um, and. Vision and yeah, you know we're definitely getting some crossover. But I mean, to get the whole cast of Guardians of the Galaxy, now obviously they're not all in it all the time. But you know that's that's not nothing. You know, Like these are people who make mm-hmm. you know billion plus dollar making movies to get them to come do a half hour Christmas special. I mean, I get. I'm sure they Disney's not hurting for the dough, but it's still pretty impressive. Yeah.
2: It raises. Some, no, it looks interesting. It raises some questions because it introduces Kevin Bacon, right? <laughs> As canonically existing in the MCU, which is interesting because we know that the X-Men are coming in some way, shape or form. And let me remind you that Mr. Kevin Bacon played Sebastian Shaw, the villain from uh, X-Men First Class. I think it was. Mm -hmm.
4: It was. Yeah. That that
2: gets a little interesting in terms of these uh, people existing as themselves and maybe mentioning or not mentioning the other version of what appears to look like them.
5: Hmm.
2: Also, I'd commented in our uh, in our Slack like I can't think of a better worst possible choice to run a Christmas sort of plan than Mantis and Drax.
5: <laughs> I
2: feel like <laughs> right. somehow Groot and Rocket would actually be more competent at this than
3: than than those
2: two. So this this feels like it's going to be a lot of
3: hijinks. Yeah, yeah. I thought the big guy, what's his name, um, the wrestler guy, Drax. Uh, no, what's the... Batista. Name? The real name? Yeah, Dave, yeah, I thought he was
4: done with... I thought he was done with the Garden, Guardians. Yeah. He said he would be done if James Gunn wasn't returning. But when oh, they I rehired see. James okay. Gunn, he said he would come back and do one last Guardians of the Galaxy film.
3: Cool. All right. Well, that's a good side. Oh, Jane Gunn that Jane Gunn? No, sorry, it project. is
4: James Gunn. For some reason, it changed it to Jane, oh. Jane's Gunn. Okay, Jane
3: Gunn, apparently. Jane, is alter ego, hey, hey, let me f- But that
4: was a good segue. Let me fix so... that for you, yeah. So, last episode, we spoke, we spoke a little bit about, uh, we spocked a little bit about the, uh, the mystery project that James Gunn was going to work on for DC. There was all these rumors going around that he was going to sign on. We talked about what movie that might be. Uh, it turns out it's all of them. So, James Gunn was announced this week, along with uh, Peter Safran as the shepherds of the DC universe in film and television. So, yeah, they're co-chairs and co-CEOs of DC Studios, which is a newly created venture that will focus on uh, both the TV and the movie universe. So one of the things that's been pretty distinctive all along is the same thing that Marvel used to have. Marvel used to have a, a different side doing the television stuff that was doing the movie stuff. And the television stuff wasn't quite as well regarded, and I say that with all love and respect to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and, and uh, you know, some of the things that I have liked, like MODOK, some of the other stuff that they've done, It uh, it's pretty much dead on the TV side. That stuff they killed because they basically absorbed that into the stuff that Kevin Feige's doing, and that's all under the DC umbrella, that's why all the Disney Plus stuff is all intertwined with the movie stuff now, it's all under one banner. DC, same job. They had basically a movie studios that was kind of doing its own thing, and then they had a television production side that was doing its own thing. But not only was it doing its own thing, it was doing its own thing and spreading it around. So there was the Greg Berlanti-led and produced content for CW, and then there was other programs that were showing up on different platforms like DC's uh, app for a while there, had Doom Patrol and Titans. Some of that work has gone over to HBO now. So they've apparently decided to just amalgamate all of it under one banner and have these two guys lead it. And I must admit, I don't know a heck of a lot about um, about Saffron, but I do know a lot about James Gunn, and he's made some great movies. So this is interesting. I wonder what he's going to uh, to bring to the mix. Well, consistency, I guess, right? From basically what you just said, with them being all over
3: the place with other stuff, right? So that may be why they're they're. You know, their efforts seem to be, you know, not as cohesive as, say, the Marvel stuff is, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
4: they don't have a Kevin Feige. They never have had one central person sort of creatively well, directing it. they had Stan
3: it. Lee, didn't they? What's that?
4: They had Stan Lee for a long time. Uh, well, and Marvel did. DC hasn't, but... Oh. Yeah. Oh, he wasn't... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there's really... There's been nobody on the DCU side that's been sort of that that consistent through line to it. So yeah, you're right. It's it's been very sort of all over the place, and it's been mixed results, is a kind way to put it. There's been some good stuff. There's been some bad yeah. stuff. Uh, there's been stuff that you know is worth worth watching, and some stuff where it's best to just turn and walk away. I'm curious. What's what that I mean?
3: Like like they get a lot of flack, you know?
4: Um, oh yeah. In general,
3: you know, like, like people like the characters. We like Superman. We like Batman. You know, we like we like all you know Wonder Woman and all that kind of stuff. And but it's been inconsistent, you know, as you said. But you know, I think I think the 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 thing is that they've got great characters. They
4: just keep dropping the ball on on what they're doing with Mm -hmm. them, right? Yeah. 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 It'll be interesting to see if having one central person. And the interesting part of this is obviously they they did kind of poach him more or less. He was working on Guardians of the Galaxy, working with Kevin Feige, working inside the the Marvel Studios, Marvel Productions banner. So he's going to know how that works with, you know, the central... You know, group of people led by Kevin Feige on the production side, and then hiring all these other people that work under that umbrella. If he can bring that experience over, he could follow that template. We might start to see a a bit more of a cohesive through line. And I'm not suggesting they need to integrate all their movies and have them overlap the way that we've seen that in some circumstances for the Marvel stuff. But even if they were a little more consistent in just, you know, making sure the quality of the product was even, that would be a good start. Yeah, I don't know that they need to reproduce the formula that works over
3: there like that's kind of uh, that's what gets movie studios into trouble is when they try and do something the same as someone else. You know, Um, yeah, you know, I think I think he like you said, he does. He's going to bring some experience from having worked in there in that stuff. But I'm sure he's going to want to go his own way, too. Right.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And then that's the hope, too. Again, you don't want him to do an exact copy because we already have an MCU and it's great. And. You know, DC obviously has its own flair and things that it's very good at, and as you say, you know, it's it's a lot more sort of myth and it'd be interesting to see how uh how he decides to to move forward with this. Cool. Little bit of bad news next. So we saw the passing of a an animation legend this week. Uh Jules Bass Bass? Bass? bass anyone? Bass Bass? Rankin Bass. Bass, like rank and bass. Rankin Bass, Rankin bass right? Yeah, yeah, that's how I've always said it, but you never know with these things. So Jules Bass, it, was the director, producer, composer, man of all things on countless things that you've seen over your lifetime, including the classic animated Christmas specials, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the the one with the stop motion animation, uh, Frosty, Frosty the, the, the Snowman, of course, The Hobbit. Uh yeah, absolutely. He's you know behind so many of these and, you know, including of course, you know Santa Claus is Coming to Town and all these things little drummer boy uh just i mean you name it uh, through that stretch he was so involved in all those different different productions and then you know later on you know the last unicorn uh thundercats you know like this this yeah. was an, a genuine icon in the world of, of animation uh, of course partnership for a long time with um arthur rankin jr so rankin bass as you guys mentioned uh yeah, these these two did a ton of animation work when it was often considered, you know, a little bit juvenile and a little bit puerile. These guys were, were were still, you know, working to bring quality and integrity and stuff to these products. And uh they kinda kept the torch alive for another generation to carry it forward and now we get to the point where animation is, is an s- extremely well regarded art art form. So yeah, I mean guys like Jules Bass, uh, you know, these these are the, the people that laid the Laid the bricks for everyone else to walk on. So uh, a big life and a and a big huge win. And uh, sad to see him go at the age of eighty seven. Uh, Arthur um, uh, already predeceased him. Uh, Arthur died a few years back. He was he
3: was younger. Um, so yeah. Actually, he was the same age, or I mean, he was the same age when he died. Uh, he was twenty twenty. He was I guess ten years old because he was eighty nine in twenty fourteen when he passed away. So
4: yeah, yeah, true, true, yeah. But yeah, it's uh, it's sad to see people like that go. But uh, man, what a legacy! It's quite a bit when you look at the um, the Rankin Bass production films. It's uh,
2: it's a lot. The Hobbit, the Wind in the Willows, uh, Little Drummer Boy, Little Drummer
4: Boy Two, Book Two, which I think I vaguely, <laughs>
3: I think I vaguely, remember. I must
4: have missed that one. Yeah, Drum Harder, you know.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, like I say, yeah. the guy was everywhere. And definitely definitely a look. I mean, between the two of them, they had a very distinctive look. I mean, it was very all over the place in the 70s when I was a kid, right? You'd see rankin Bass stuff on Saturday morning cartoons, and mm-hmm. you'd see the influence on their TV shows. I think, I want to say H.R. Puff and stuff sort of had that look, too, but I don't know if it was necessarily just maybe inspired by their kind of animation, right? Like, that's where The Hobbit looks like, you know, Toad of Toad Hall or, mm-hmm. or you know see the Snowman
4: for that matter, right? It's that same style. Cool. And Speaking of Doctor Who... Speaking of Doctor Who as we were a few minutes ago, so on the heels of a new Doctor Who special, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, we, uh, we also got the news this week that we're getting Doctor Who in a different delivery method here in, uh, in North America. So in the U.S., it's going to be on uh, Disney Plus for upcoming seasons, which is interesting. Um, it says North America, but I have not been able to track, and I've been looking the last couple of days. Have you guys seen anything anywhere about Canada? Uh, no, but I mean, the, uh, we're not the BBC, so... No, we're not, but there has been a long-standing relationship between what was space, is now space, CTV yeah. Sci-Fi, and the BBC. I was thinking that the too, BBC. Actually, So yeah. I don't know what the deal is, but I have not seen anything that, that clarifies it for me. I think it depends on who has the more money. Uh, well honestly it depends on term of contract if they have you know yeah if yeah. they have the ability to just you know end the contract with you know crave or or, or whatever it is ctv sci-fi here in canada and move it to disney plus i'm sure that's better for them across the board but whether or not they can just up and do that i don't know but
3: yeah i don't know well i did see i did see uh um the act the new doctor who i'm gonna try and do his he, he said his name like it's like Chuti Katwa is the new Doctor Who, and um, he was on a commercial today talk, or I saw him on a, answering Doctor Who questions and, and just sort of saying and all about coming to Disney and BBC, but he didn't say anything specific about any particular countries other than that, but I just generally, you know, BBC has sort of always had the Doctor Who, and then the rest of the world, you know, gets it wherever they get it. I don't know, where, where do you get it in, in the States? Is it on Sci-Fi Channel or something like that, Jaime? um let me think about that Or hbo so i believe they do have it on
2: hbo max but i don't know i've not looked to see what that back catalog looks like um i think bbc america which is how i ended up watching uh recording that channel through youtube tv so it's kind of a, a litany of places but it's it's easier to answer a new doctor who than it is older
3: uh catalog stuff hmm interesting yeah i'm we'll gonna have to wait and see you guys it's gonna be and it's gonna be a wait like as i said before right
4: yeah it was it was a real weird one because there was very little notice before this episode that dropped on the weekend they only announced it like maybe a week before that it was coming it came yeah. it has a pretty big couple of twists in it and then they were like hey hope you enjoyed the show see you next year yeah yeah it it's more challenging because I mean y- you all were
2: wondering here, so the articles had talked about uh, outside of the UK and Ireland it's Disney plus is the place, which is already you know fragmented as it is for a global audience uh, being in the USA, I can assume when they say outside of the UK and the and Ireland and internationally it's like oh, the United States gets covered in that, but you all were just talking about now about like well Canada it's a little weird because you've got these weird rights relationships with your existing Uh, you know, platforms and companies that do that stuff. So it is, uh, it is very difficult. It, you know, it it is something for people to think about, about like, you know, is the consolidation a bad thing? I'm not going to say that it's not. But the one nice thing about consolidation is that it does mean that it gets simpler to just be like, yo, I want to watch all of Star Trek. And I think that's almost all true with Paramount+. Plus. I think there is some stuff that is missing. I don't remember off the top of my head what is or isn't
3: um yeah know. it does say here in this article too that it's exclusively on bbc for uk and ireland so i mean presumably that means again up for grabs what's interesting too and my question was okay well what about all the back catalog because it's always been prohibitively expensive to get a hold of um older i mean there's tons of vhs's and and you know box sets and um actually they never really did box sets they only started doing them recently on on dvd and i'm not sure if they do and blu-ray and stuff but it's always been really pricey stuff coming out of bbc studios right so unless you're a real die-hard fan you know you probably don't you probably haven't seen all the episodes so what's interesting is the new logo is the same logo or similar logo that was on tom baker's doctor who back in the late 70s right so can we read between the lines as we normally do and say does that mean that we're going to get some back catalog stuff in, in Disney Plus as well? Like, we've got the star stuff, right? So who knows? Um, it'd be interesting to I mean, it's really janky special effects, but, you know, it's kind of quaint and, and of its time. But um, it certainly was... I mean, like, Star Trek made Doctor Who look like, you know, uh, like a kid's show kind of thing. Or not a kid's show, but a, like a greasy kid's stuff show, right? Um, and so let's let's do let's give people fair warning because unless you are living under a rock and you haven't been on social networks for the last couple of days um and you didn't watch the last episode there are quite a few easter eggs and spoilers so this is your spoiler warning where we're going to dig in just for a few minutes and talk about what we just saw right um as i mentioned the only people that i noticed that weren't there was uh eccleston capaldi and matt smith right matt smith we know is busy you know shanking his niece and and um uh shanking is that the right word uh boinking i guess and driving around in dragons right so so obviously he's tied up and mind you he's probably done he was doing he's doing uh press tours right now for House of the dragons so but anyway Um, that, nevertheless, uh, and are they filming, didn't we, didn't didn't your cousin say that they were filming, um, House of the Dragon, was it in Ireland or in Wales They said they were filming it? I think
4: they're doing both, but I know they're doing some of it in Northern Ireland. That's what they did, the Game of Thrones. Northern Ireland, yeah,
3: because, 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 um, Doctor Who's filmed in Wales, right? Um, which everybody knows, but the... So yeah, so so the the what, what I found really interesting about the show was I didn't recognize the two ladies, Ace and and um, Tegan, right away, but they were companions when I was a kid, right? Um, uh, because I watched Tom Baker was was my doctor, and so and Tegan would have been his one of his assistants, and then um the second one, Ace, was with Peter Davidson, who is David Tennant's father-in-law, in fact, right? And what was interesting, and I and I missed those other the other three between um. Between Peter Davidson and and the the next generation or the new generation of Doctor Who, of which we just watched the thirteenth season, um, yeah. So those other do- I, I don't really know them that well, but but it was interesting because when Jodie Whittaker goes into the sort of the after world or or the the holding pen area, the waiting room for regeneration, um, she sees other doctors and they're all played by the original actors who played the various incarnations of doctors, except for the first one who had died. And the person from Harry Potter series named, I forget his name now. Um, who's the house, the the groundskeeper on, on um, Harry Potter. Help me now. You know, the guy, come on.
2: Well, I recognized him. Um, uh, Argus
3: Filch is what the internet tells me. He's... Filch. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. Filch. yeah. So he played, he plays, uh, he plays the, he, Played the first Doctor in uh, a TV making of Doctor Who that was filmed, where he played the original actor. Um, so he, so he's kind of like, like he's like the de facto first Doctor, right? And from because the other actor is long dead, right? And he looks very similar to him and dresses the same way. So it was interesting to see them sort of with all the different clothing and, you know, the different sweaters, like, you know, the sweaters with the question marks on. I don't know if you guys recognize any of this stuff. And even the master was wearing Tom Baker's scarf, you know. Um, and so they had the, they had the, uh, the, the companions as well as a bunch of the doctors, minus the three that I mentioned. Um, and the, the, the interesting thing was at the very end where, where, um, uh, the older dude um forgotten his name now um because yeah everybody was in it like even dan dan was in the very beginning and he left the he left he decided to leave the 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 doctor but uh but they have this support group at the end of the at the end of the show where they have all the companions who can't talk about the doctor uh who now have a support group they can go to and they can you know like like a sort of a an al-anon kind of you know uh, talk about their their life with the doctor, and and the old man that talks was actually one of the companions from the very first doctor. Hmm. So yeah, I, I didn't catch his name, but yeah, I, I looked at him and I thought, well, he, first of all, he's really old, so he, I wonder who he is. But yeah, he was actually from from the first the first very first doctor, one of his uh, companions, right? Hmm. And the big surprise was, you know, as we expected, Jodie Whittaker to to regenerate and turn into another doctor. It, it, I mean, part of the of the plot apparently the the um the forced regeneration is something that they used to do to to people on gallifrey when they broke the law right they were forced to regenerate into into another person and that's kind of what where the master takes that idea from it's not like it's something that hasn't been talked about or or done before um and he forces her to so kind of maybe messes up her her regeneration pattern um because the actor who i can't is it tutsi Gatway, Chutti. was Chutti. you were expecting him yeah. to appear at the end of the episode, and it didn't. It was it was David Tennant, right? And you know, if you, I mean, you look on anywhere on any picture of Doctor Who these days, and it's David Tennant looking out, standing out in in the TARDIS, looking out, going, "What the heck's going on?" Right? Now that was a real twist, you know. Like, um, because and according to this article that I mean I posted here, David Tennant's going to be in the first three episodes of the new series, right? Which is kind of an interesting thing, you know. And I've seen interviews with him and Matt Smith together and separately throughout the years and, and they've all talked they've all talked about going back and doing Doctor Who at some point, right? Um so it's kinda of fun, you know, for for you know again, not the best sci fi on, on the planet, but still, you know, if you're if you've been watching Doctor Who for a long, long time, it's kinda of fun to sort of see these, you know, these guys come back and be revealed, right? So what did you guys think of the
4: whole episode in general? It was it, it was probably different for you than it was for me. I was not a classic Doctor Who fan. I remember trying to watch bits of it in the past. You know, I, I had a lot of British friends growing up. It was something that was on in the afternoons here in Ontario on TV Ontario Public Access Television, and it was awful. It was it was awful. It, it was the worst sci-fi. It's very, it's very much
3: the it's the sci-fi
4: version of Coronation Street. Like, oh, it's, yeah, it's like... I, it, it it had a very loyal audience. And the people who loved it, loved it. But I grew up on on Star Wars and then, you know, uh, Close Encounters and E.T. and good sci-fi that was, you know, I had sort of had a high bar. So when they were like, oh, you'd love Doctor Who if you love sci-fi, I was like, this is, what's with the thing with the plunger on the front? Like, this is awful. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> never mind that, the special video, the the video effects, it just played to
3: the filters and stuff, yeah.
4: Yeah, I mean, it, it was feedback. it was pretty yeah. low budget and, and pretty rough, so I never really took to it. But I do remember, you know, uh, Davidson and Baker, and, you know, I remember those faces. They were certainly icons of the time, people, you know, you would, I was going to comic cons and, and nerd shows for 40 years, and I remember lots of people dressed up like that, and it being a big, you know, cult favorite, especially among uh, Canadians who grew up Brits, and, and So I I have an awareness, but even I was watching this episode being like, who's that? Who's that? Who's that? Who's that? I'm sure for a certain generation, there's a real kitsch to like, oh, wow, it's Ace. Oh, wow. It's Tegan. Oh, wow. It's this. Oh, wow. It's that. And it's like, for me, it, it would have been much more interesting if they brought back, obviously, again, they did... Bring back Tenet, but if they brought back Matt Smith and Karen Gillan, and you know if they brought back Eccleston and they brought back Billy Piper, yeah, also, and... why
3: weren't they in the very last scene? Why couldn't they spend a few bucks and have them in the very last scene? You just you know in the in the support group because obviously Amy Pond and Ro- and um, Rory, was Rory, that name? yeah, yeah, they need support too, right?
4: So yeah, yeah, and Alex Kingston didn't bring her back either. Yeah, so and I get it. The part that I found a little incongruous was that obviously. You know, everybody there has gotten older. It stands to reason that the companions have gotten older because, of course, they're human beings. But then they come into encountering, as part of the plot of this story, they come into encountering a holographic presentation of the Doctor to them, and it's their Doctor, not just the Jodie Whitaker Doctor. It's it's their Doctor, but at their current ages, not at their younger ages. And I thought, if this was Disney Plus, or this was something else maybe they use their voices and they de-age them for those bits or something. Totally. totally. Just something else to sort of be like, oh, remember, because if they'd shown me, you know, those doctors at the way that they looked in the day, I would have been, oh, clearly that's that clearly, you know, like like, it's much more relevant that way. This kind of struck me as like, you know, when the old doctor shows up and they're like, oh, I recognize you. I'm like, Why? How would you do that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I didn't recognize Tegan.
3: Like, you know, like she was like a twenty-four-year-old newbile assistant. You know. Mm -hmm. To be honest, with you like I actually had to go to IMDb after after the show was over, or pause the show or whatever, to go and try and figure out where they came from. I went to I think I went to uh, Wikipedia, not yeah Wikipedia to figure out where they come from because there's all kinds of Doctor Who stuff on Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. yeah, but even even I was at a loss, you know, and um. You know and and Tom Baker's still around. I don't know why I guess maybe he's maybe gotten too old. He was in the last um he was in the um the Day of Doc, doctor, which was Matt Smith and David Tennant together yeah they somehow ended in the same timeline, and Tom Baker was the curator at the museum that they went to right yeah it's it's fun. You know, what, but I I wanted to hear from Jaime, like as somebody who had no clue what was going on, not well, some clue what was going on. What did you think about it?
2: I thought it was uh, still a pretty enjoyable episode for me. I could more or less get the gist of what was going on, and and by the way that they sort of cinematically handle the introduction of a person, I'm like oh, this must be like a previous Doctor Who cast member of some sort, and I figure it must be the equivalent of the many folks who were going to go into Star Trek Picard season three with only the vaguest sense of who some of the people are and why everybody was losing their minds at seeing the trailer. Right. So I'm like, Oh, okay. Same thing, but for Dr. Who fans. So I just moved on with my life and said, all right, cool. Let me just enjoy the episode. I have no clue who this person is. Previous companion. Got it. Uh, Previous doctor. Got it. Right. It it was, I think, simple enough for me to understand that even if I didn't get um, the implications of like, I think it was Ace who was really obsessed with like, bashing stuff with a, a, a baseball bat or blowing stuff up baseball bat, yeah. <laughs> like that's not meaningful to me but like i get it they did a decent job of explaining it to people who aren't familiar with the lore like i am uh, who, like me who are not familiar with the lore
3: yeah it's interesting because you know the doctor the doctor always like uh the you know ha, the, the, as uh the new the new doctor who described it today you know always sort of has you know earth's best interest at heart but the doctors were very different people. I mean, you know, um, Capaldi was kind of, or not Capaldi, but D- Davidson was kind of a softy, and Capaldi was a grump. You know, um, and uh, you know, it, Matt Smith was fun and quirky, and you know, so I'm sure the other the other actors had their own um, proclivities. But the thing is that, you know, no two doctor, no two actors ever acted the same way as the doctor, right? Uh, and this, in the same way that Jodie Whittaker made the doctor her, her own, you know, Yorkshire self, right? Um, you know, and it's, yeah, so I mean, like, it, it's interesting, it's an, it's an interesting episode, it's an interesting concept that, you know, the, the character evolves, it's sort of a convenient, you know, in the same sense that Star Trek only goes for seven years and then, then it, it ends, right? Um, and then we drag him out in the, the movies for eons afterwards, right? But the... You know, sort of going into it knowing that there's a finite amount of time. And, you know, I was always disappointed by how short it seems to have a Doctor in place. Because it usually takes you probably three or four episodes to really buy into this new actor as the Doctor. Um, and then, um, and then you know, having them... Um, you know change and then and you know by the time you get used to them they they the actor's contract ends or whatever whatever the reasons are for why they keep rotating them, the showrunner changes or something like that right um there's a new doctor all of a sudden right so interesting too that that uh Nuti, um or how do you say it again Tuti Tuti Gatway yeah Tuti Gatway was saying today that um he referred to the doctor as they and them yeah mm-hmm not as he because it's always been a he right because the yeah, one one line that the old the old man says that the old companion says the thing when dan when um what's his name uh the other older actor uh is talking about you know how
4: she affected him right and he's like w- did you say she you know yep well i mean now i guess the doctor sort of transcended out not that the doctor hasn't always transcended uh gender or sexuality but now it's yeah. firm right
3: well, I mean, and the other thing too is is that that you know, and I said this often about things like like sci-fi, like like do- the Doctor is from another planet, right? So the Doctor doesn't necessarily have to have two arms, two legs, two eyes, and a nose, you know, or gender for that matter, right? So David Bradley played Filch, and he played the first Doctor. In in uh, speaking of which, so the other Doctors were Colin Baker, uh, who. Was there? Peter Davidson was there, obviously, as I mentioned. Paul McGann is the other doctor, and Sylvester McCoy is the real quirky one that I that I've never I've never seen him as the doctor either. But, um, Bradley Walsh. I was going to say Bradley. I don't know why I didn't say that, but yeah, he plays Graham on the show. But he's he's from um Law and Order UK. <laughs> Have you ever watched Law? You know,
4: Law and Order. He's on that. So, so I I found I found a piece from uh from the Irish Mirror this from this week where Chris Chibnall, who's this, the showrunner for, for this, is now the outgoing showrunner for this, said, uh, with regards to Tom Baker, quote, We asked Tom, but sadly he could not do it. He was not available, and it's such a shame. Um, but when asked about Peter Capaldi, Matt Smith, and Christopher Eccleston's absences, that was to protect Doctor Who, new Doctor Who boss Russell T. Davies' plans for the 60th anniversary. Quote, I did not want Ooh. to tread on anything that might be happening in the future, So those ones felt the right ones. I wanted it to be classic Doctors, and there's not a huge amount of those. It was a bit of an instinct, and we asked them, and they all said yeah. So maybe we will still yet get more old Doctors and
3: Companions next year. Oh, now I remember this guy, Colin Baker. I'm trying to remember who he was, but he's the guy that, I don't know if you've ever seen, he had a blonde perm. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember, I can picture it in my head. And he dresses like uh, Moriarty from, um, in colors, right?
4: Yeah. But again, speak speaking of which, like his his people wouldn't have recognized him. He had his hair was brown and slicked back here. And and gone.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean I didn't recognize him and I've and I've seen him as I don't think I watched him, but I knew he was the Doctor Who for a while and you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's when they kinda lost me. <laughs> They're gonna, you know, deep fake or tarkin some of these
2: folks in the future anyways, <laughs> like you said. <laughs> they get that Disney Plus money and it's like You know, they'll they'll handle some of this stuff for you. I am um, perhaps overly cynical about uh, the the stunt of having David Tennant return. Feels like uh, a, I'm not saying it's a bad decision because it's an interesting one. Um, It's certainly a person that I, even I would recognize as a, as a doctor who, it feels a little bit like somebody somewhere said, you know what, we already had enough trouble with this first time having a doctor regenerate as not a white man. Can we do two in a row that are not a white man? No, we can't. We already scheduled this other one, but what if we brought back a white man to be in between? So it's technically not sequential. Mm. You know what I mean?
5: Right. Like, oh, uh, right. You
2: know, yeah. it feels like one of those, uh, semi cynical things that, uh, can work out for the fan base, but kind of is intended to pander to a, unsavory part of the fan base uh look at you know mm. the, the stuff that we talked about heck anything that has uh, a a non-white man main character like um, you know the kenobi series and i'm sure black panther will see it as well uh just this really weird sort of thing that people do i'm not saying that that was a consideration here but it feels a little uh feels a little funny to do it this way
3: now, just you know, to save to save ourselves a lot of fact checking for the completionists, right? William Hartnell played the first Doctor. William Hartnell. Patrick Troughton played the second Doctor. Never saw an episode of his. John Pertwee played the Doctor third. Tom Baker fourth. Peter Davidson fifth. Colin Baker sixth. Sylvester McCoy seventh. Paul McGinn. I probably should stop seeing the numbers so I can get it right. Eighth. Christopher Auguston was the new doctor who was starting in two thousand and five. David Tennant, obviously, John Hurt was the War doctor, um, in a few episodes. Matt Smith, Peter Capaldi, and Jody Whitaker were the thirteen doctors. Hmm. And Peter Christian played him in the movies.
2: Wait, did what are you include? did that include some of the other folks that we learned about were the previously hidden regenerations? Uh what do you mean by previously so hidden? I forget
3: uh who plays the uh, the black lady doctor? That was the I... yeah yeah no yeah she was that was that was a uh, that was from thir- this thirteenth season was it the thirteenth or twelfth season she was in twelfth I guess right you're right no I didn't I didn't include her and the war doctor I did mention the war doctor John Hurt. Oh, did
4: you? oh okay that was John Hurt yeah.
3: yeah I didn't talk about Bad Wolf though yeah true true true. Well, actually the list I'm looking at ends at Peter Capaldi so I inserted Jodie Whittaker in the there yeah
2: it gets complicated yeah. because. You have to split the list into all people's who have been doctors versus ones yeah. that have been main characters of a series, which the one I just mentioned was not. Right? They were uh, a supporting character in the series. Yeah, but technically, you're right. She's a doctor, right? Yeah, yeah. So in the future, when whenever um, you know a black actress is cast as a Doctor Who, they will inevitably be incorrect. You know, in a well, actually. Kind of internet way of like, <laughs> yeah. oh, this is the first black woman doctor. It's like, no, technically not. Let's go back to Jodie Whittaker's run on the series and and prove it to you. Be the
3: first one as main character, uh, though, when that happens. Interesting that she's not listed here in the credits. Let me see if we figure out who she is. Is also the the lady from Division, Kate Stewart, yeah. um, is her, played by Gemma Redgrave, who's from the famous Redgrave family.
4: But was it? It was that her dad was a companion, right? Wasn't that the
3: shtick? No, it, her her father was the colonel, you see him. He's dressed in like a like a British army. Outfit. Right, 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 right. Yeah, he was the colonel or something like that they called him. Yeah, but yeah. That was that was her dad. Car her character. Yeah, he was Colonel Stewart or whatever. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Joe Martin is the name of the actress right. who played yes. the, the the Doctor. Yeah. yeah, she's also in Batman Begins. Who knew?
4: Okay, as we're piling on here, I got one more for you. This week's episode of Doctor Who broke a record, or established a new record for the Guinness Book of World Records. Longest gap between TV appearances as the same character. So, William Russell returned as Ian Chesterton, the first companion of the original Doctor. The last time he played that role on TV was 57 years, 3 months, and 28 days. That's the longest gap in the history of television between playing the same part by the same actor. I didn't know that was in the Guinness Book of World Records, but I I did see that. Uh, on the trivia
3: yeah that's interesting that that um
4: yeah it broke the record held by a character who was on Cor- coronation street who had a 43 year gap so broke it by a substantial margin what's ron howard doing we need to get him in a special about the uh town of mayberry and he can break over more records
3: yeah that's
4: true <laughs> was that, do you think it's longer oh i don't know i mean he played that role when he was like eight years old and he's got to be in his 60s now easily he's older than me i think isn't he Oh, the the fact check, the fact check. I
3: know, eh? So apparently David Tennant is now the 14th Doctor, as well as being the 10th. Dun, dun, weird, dun. eh? There's, there goes your stats there, I mean.
2: Yeah, it gets really weird. You have to have multiple lists, or at least one list that's
3: really easily filterable. So, And one thing you didn't know, too, is that Jodie Whittaker was pregnant when she filmed that episode. Yeah, oh, good for her. And she didn't tell anybody. So there's technically another Doctor. <laughs> baby doctor <laughs> uh, Ron Howard 68 well there you go there you go So, the, by the way the master when he when he was the doctor he wore the 12th doctor's shirt the 10th doctor's necktie the 7th doctor's sweater vest the 13th doctor's 13th doctor's coat the 15th doctor's decorative vegetable the 4th doctor's scarf interesting eh mm. Thing. And he played the second doctor's recorder. Hmm. So he didn't. He looked like Joey from um, from Friends when he decided to wear all his all his clothes. Oh yeah, he was wearing all Chandler's clothes. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we do have a podcast to put on, so let's let's move on to another subject. Uh, back to I believe it would be Honey.
2: Yeah, Disney has said that in its grand plan to make the virtual and reality worlds uh, blurry lines between them. They want to have your viewing history on Disney Plus personalize your theme park experience in the real world, and likewise your theme park experience to influence your Disney Plus experience. Um, the examples here of like, you know, if you go to Pirates of the Caribbean, the ride that it'll track that and start curating the content you see on Disney Plus, or that if you start seeing things on Disney Plus, somehow you know affects things that will happen at the park. And I I raise the question to both you gentlemen, do uh, do you really want anybody knowing, like, hey, uh, what you've been watching on Disney Plus? Why is your experience so different from mine? Because <laughs> it's not right. <laughs> it Becomes yeah, yeah. more
3: obvious. Right? Well, it's interesting, you know. I accidentally logged into another person's account at, here at home, and the, yeah, the the menus are all different, right? Like they all they all morph to the person who's uh, got the remote in their hand. I guess, Jonathan, you must
4: have that experience with all your people, right? Yep. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean. I find the whole thing, like, even now, when, you know, you start talking about a topic and then your phone starts showing you ads for it, I find it unsettling. I don't know. Could a personalized park experience be good? Sure. Could it be creepy as hell? Yeah. Yeah, if you watch
3: things like the Sandman and, and the werewolf and... Stuff like that in in the comfort of your own home. Do you want you know that kind of stuff happening in, in the real life as you go through the park? Maybe you're, just, you're there to see the Disney princesses. You know, right? Yeah. Or by the same token, maybe you go to the park and it's all Disney princesses. What does that say about you?
4: <laughs> well, we know that Jaime would get the Paw Patrol parade coming at him, and uh... well, that's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. All
2: right, one more, Jaime. Yeah. Um, rounding things out in our news items is that Netflix has an official date for the. Sonic the Hedgehog TV show, the animated series that they're debuting now on December 7th, sorry, December 15th. They had had announced this was coming, an animated series based on uh, the theme of multiverse, which seems to be a a thing in media nowadays. So keep an eye out for that
3: animated series. Cool. Hmm. Uh Uh-oh. Elon Musk has just finalized
4: the deal to buy Twitter. Yeah. And he started taking off people's heads already. Mm -hmm. Really? He he laid off four major executives already. Basically wow. the ones who were fighting him in the uh, in the trial. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> there's a surprise. Yeah. A surprise. It's a good thing I don't work in social media, or this would be really annoying. <laughs> I
3: sense a tinge of irony there. Mm. All right. Well, we're at the part of the show where we talk about something related to Star Trek. Or, sorry, we Spock about something related. I heard you say Spock. That's right. We, we Spock about John. things. Well, so we I think we're going to start talking about things from now on as you know transport at home. So uh, yeah, this is the part where we usually talk about something related to Star Trek, and this week it is the season finale, third season, I guess, of Lower Decks. Hmm. And Jaime has his name on the notes first, so I'm going to throw to Jaime. Yeah, mine is a precog, you know, follow up fact check for Lower Decks, uh,
2: which is the scene from uh, Pee Wee Herman's movie with the uh, the stars at night are big and bright deep in the heart of texas scene it goes with the what i assume is the uh, the you know meaning behind the name of the stars at night given that this covers the texas class starship Hmm. i mean it's practically an easter egg at that point for that one i'm not sure how folks feel about that but that's what i immediately thought of when i saw the title of the episode when i fired it up on paramount plus
4: yeah you just reminded me actually of a easter egg did uh do, do you get like some kind of uh a fine or something if you don't clap when somebody starts singing that or nobody knows because it's so consistently you know handled uh, culturally <laughs> <laughs> do, do you do you have to like restrain yourself from clapping when when somebody says it or what's what's the etiquette
2: uh, yeah i don't know how the etiquette handles like uh, you know, funeral-type situations or wedding-type situations. Actually, wedding might be okay. Uh, you know, areas where you might need to otherwise stay quiet socially and how it conflicts with your, your ethical,
3: moral, and imperative duty to, to respond in kind. <laughs> Speaking of which, did you know that the Don't Mess with Texas, do you know what the origins of that is? Uh, does it go further than the litter campaign? Because that's how I know it. No. It does not go further than the literal... Well, people take it further than the literal campaign, but it, it was, yeah, it was about... It was actually started for the... Liter- well, you know, because you're a native, right? Um, it was started, don't mess with Texas, is don't make a mess in Texas, basically, was there... That's where it came from. I seem to remember George Bush using don't mess with Texas in a different way, a different, different, for a different purpose.
2: It, it's a good bit of, uh, you know, public service announcement slash TV commercial writing, because it has that, that literal sense to it and the sort of you know metaphorical sense to it that works well with the state so elevator pitches mine i'll I'll, I'll go in here mine was the the cerritos is fighting to prove the value of the california
4: class when it's seemingly obsoleted by the texas class
2: Hmm.
3: yep
4: pretty close i had uh it's texas versus california in a contest for the future of second contacts uh, contacts Second like contact. Well, because that's that's what the California classes do. Although it's funny because the second contact is supposed to be about like, well, you already had your first contact. Could you imagine if you had your second contact with an alien race and they're like, we just sent a ship, no people, just a ship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course,
3: mine was you know the typical trope: can't trust AI. Yeah,
4: that mm-hmm. seems to be a running theme through the first three seasons, from uh, Badgie to yeah to uh, Peanut Hamper to. Now the, the 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 great reveal from this episode, which we'll talk about, is is you know what happened to Rutherford and his and his uh, his well not visor what do they call it his as his, his implant yeah augmentation yeah, yeah. Im- augmentation yeah yeah so you know there's there's been all these things and now of course we got this with the with the Texas class ship that they're all compromised.
3: But it's also it's also a typical trope. I mean it starts obviously in 1969 with HAL 9000 right, and moves right into well, mind you, I guess um nomad would have been before that. Nomad was the the um the satellite that comes that end, or the orbiting robot y thing that that ends up on the enterprise and um tries to take over the enterprise, right and tries to um uh sanitize the the enterprise by getting rid of the parasitic people. Um, and there was another episode of Star Trek. Oh, here we go with the fact check. Where <laughs> a um, doctor believes that he can create a has a computer that can drive the ship, right? So he plants. He, he has this. This you know, Starfleet comes and he installs this AI into the into the Enterprise. Yeah, and then you know, it's Kirk and McCoy and Spock's mission to prove that you can't trust AI, right? Because that goes horribly wrong. And then you're right. So it's not just you know the exocomp and and things like that too. It's it's uh, it seems to be a running trope in science fiction in general, right? Yeah,
4: and and we may be discussing that when we talk about Star Trek Prodigy in a few minutes too.
3: Yeah. Oh. Was, oh. I, missed, I guess I missed that episode. What? I, I was trying to think today. Was I was trying to think today. Was I? Was, what else is I supposed to watch? Right. So, Scandal. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh well. I didn't see it on the Crave though. So, it was. It know, was there. It was there. I just went. I went over to Disney and watched some of the uh, Jedi stuff. Yeah.
4: Anyway. So, the best pew-pew-pew was obviously the uh the California class ships versus the Texas class ships uh the The running total of all the names was really funny as as Boyd was like, "Look, it's this and 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 this this and this I started writing them down, and I finally gave up i'm like, oh, so it's Oakland, alhambra, San Diego, San Clemente Sherman Oaks, Facaville." Burbank, Fresno, mm-hmm. Santa Monica, San Jose, Sacramento, Culver City, Anaheim, Riverside. I gave up at that point. I'm like, geez, there's another 15 of these. So that is yeah, there's what
3: there's one odd one you missed, too. Were they, were they all California names? They were. Yeah, mm-hmm. they're all named mm-hmm. Burbank names. and other things that uh, even I recognize not being from from California. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, that was a that that funny point, gag.
2: Texas was easier. So so we already looked up Alito, which I was not familiar with personally. Uh, Dallas and Corpus Christi are both definitely towns and cities in
3: Texas. Oh, Corpus Christi that's the one mm-hmm. I was that's the one I was that stuck up with. I was I going to I was going to ask you if that was a Texas uh name. Yeah,
2: It is. It is uh, like in the south area at the body of Christ or something. Corpus Christi. Yes, that is what it is. So um to describe we take a really quick look at the map. So if you know you're not going to know where South Padre Island is. I know where El Paso is. Okay, so if you know where, like, <laughs> the bottom... So El Paso is on the western point of Texas, but if you know the southern point and you come up 25% up the curve as you're going up the, the Gulf Coast, that's where Corpus Christi is. Oh, so okay. it's, it's, so a it's a coastal sort of like Gulf of Mexico coastal town. Not, not, not close to Mexico, mm-hmm. no.
3: Um, but it's uh, in oh, the Gulf of, of Mexico, to similar like Houston... Is also in the Gulf. What's the body of water that that um, Texas and Florida surround?
2: The oh, Gulf sorry, I didn't Gulf of Mexico. Yes, I thought I heard just Mexico, but that yeah, might yeah. have been an internet blip thing. No, Gulf of Mexico. Yep. yep. So it's on the Gulf. So they they did definitely. That was my best pew pew pew. That they saved all the the pew 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 budget for this episode
3: for this specific fight. A lot yeah. of stuff. A lot of stuff going on. <laughs> all, all all the uh, green and yellow crayons. Exactly. That's right. Right. Uh, how about your Easter yep. eggs, guys? What would you have? So who put the jumpsuit one? I put us? the olive
4: jumpsuits because they make a reference to that. You know, I don't want to go work because they, they think they're going to lose their job, right? So the, the, the real pitch for the episode is, you know, that Buen Amigo has these automated ships. He wants to replace all the California class and basically shut down Freeman's ship and crew. And, uh, so as a result of that, they're all worried about what they're going to do next. And I can't recall which one of them said it, but one of the lower deckers says, you know, I don't want to go work on a space station. I look terrible in an olive jumpsuit. Of course, the olive jumpsuit (laughs) is a running gag because that's basically what they put all of them in, in the classic series, right? Right. Yeah. Yes. So they mentioned Brigadoon. Yep. They had a Brigadoon
3: planet, Mm -hmm. which is kind of, it's not really an Easter egg, but it kind of relates back to, um, uh, Crusher's, uh romance with her oh yeah
4: the ghost the ghost romance the worst episode of tng ever
3: yeah and i don't know if you've ever seen the movie brigadoon it's a famous hollywood thing about this city in scotland that only appear or town in scotland only appears a certain time of the year like once and then goes away for like 20 years or something like that Uh, and of course you know gene kelly falls in love with you know the local girl right um did you guys get the Riker leg bend (laughs) yeah over the chair yeah. So I don't know if you've ever, ever seen it, but there's a video on YouTube where they show um, Jonathan Frakes, you know, probably used that maneuver about a hundred times in the next generation because he'd hurt his back and he couldn't sit properly. So he would do the Riker leg. That's what the whole the stretch your leg out and put it over the chair and then drop your butt down that Ransom does. That's the Le Riker leg bend. <laughs> yeah. And I've just put this on the, the Easter egg that I just recognized was, I was looking at, um, I went back and I did a freeze frame on the, um, uh, who's the bad, the bad uh, admiral guy? Buen Didn't Amigo. His name. Yeah. Sorry? Buen Amigo. Buen Amigo. He, um, which means friend. <laughs> Isn't that good friend? But, uh, uh, buen, buen Amigo, is that it? Yeah, Buen Amigo,
2: yeah, it would be good, good friend. friend, wouldn't it? Jaime? It seems like it would be. Bueno, Bueno amigo is kind of a like portmanteau of uh, the two, but it, it certainly feels like it's meant to be that given the sort of sunny disposition they give him as the, the veneer,
3: right? And he,
2: yeah, he until he cracks
4: series. in this episode. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. So, you know how they have the, uh, the, uh, the captain or whoever it is who's running the show always has the, you know, the IKEA shelf behind them with all the stuff on it. Um, he had a whole bunch of, you know, Texas-based uh, artifacts, and in the corner he had the flag of Texas hmm. in a frame. Hmm. Yeah. And he had another one with just a star. You know how the, the Texas is the, the blue, pla- blue plane with a star, and then the red and the white stripe, I think, kind And then mm-hmm. what's the flag that's just a star? Like, it's probably like a blue field with a star on it, you know? Is it the Confederate um, <laughs> Texas
2: flag? Um, I'm... Not as into flags, I certainly know the Texas one. Uh, you say one that's mm. just a blue field and a star. Yeah, I'm the flag guy here I know
4: I realize that but oh well yeah cool. and the uh, so which the the big question I had for this one, so did you guys watch all the way through the credits and get the the bonus scene? no
2: yes th- this this is stupidly difficult on the Paramount plus uh, what was I using uh, on on uh, Google TV with Chromecast? I had to mm-hmm. fight the, oh, uh, we're going to the next thing in the queue. In 20 seconds, we're going to go to Voyager. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> I want to see if there's still stuff after Ooh. the credits. So I'm like fighting the UI to like go back into the credits and and see if there's anything. So that's a, that's a miss for uh, usability.
4: Yeah, even the Crave app on which I watched Lower Decks today. What it does usually is it shows you everything relevant and then it it shrinks down the last of the credits and then shows you basically, yeah. you know, click here for more, watch the next episode, yada, yada. But I had left it up and then it was minimized to probably 1 18th of my screen. And then I saw that it was cutting to something else. So I quickly zoomed over to it and re-expanded it to fill the screen to be able to get it in time. But the scene that you missed him that you will go back and watch... Starts by identifying that it's the Kala system, and then sort of zooms through, and you see a bunch of space debris, and then as you zoom in on the space debris, you see a little flicker of a face across the screen, and it's Badgy. Badgy, Mm -hmm. Like the remnants of Badgie left within
2: the old implant that was in the splody ship where Shaxx died that
3: first time. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I thought Shaq was going to die again in this episode. It certainly seemed like, like that because like, yeah. they gave him like his final opportunity to like see
2: the, the one thing he keeps saying to do of, of <laughs> should uh, eject the warp core, ejecting the warp core and <laughs> they made fun of him at the beginning with the, uh you know, he,
3: I talk about the prophets more than a Ferengi kind of thing when Boimler's imitating him. Hmm. Mm. <laughs> Well, and they, and they had the big send-off, like, you know, when when Spock goes down to, to save the day in, in the Wrath of Khan, right? He goes down to the engine room to, to do the big thing, right? So, kind of like setting up, a, you know, a big moment. And they're all cheering him as he's going, because I guess he finally gets the ejector work core, right?
4: Again, he's been saying it for three years, so it was, it was a big moment for him. And then, yeah, of course, he has the big makeup with Boimler, and he's like, You made my dreams come true! <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, little little bear, yeah, in he joins him into the bear club. Yeah, another baby bear. Which kind of suspiciously sounds like, you know, senior, you know, bridge crew grooming the younger... Yeah. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Especially when he calls him a bear, right? <laughs> baby bear. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't a baby
4: bear an otter? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'm... Maybe have... Twink. I'm thinking twink. Uh, yeah, I I oh, yeah. Let's not digress there. So uh, I pulled a couple of quotes that made me laugh uh, from... Chief Billups in engineering, when they're talking about trying to win this competition between the Cerritos and the Alito. I want to see Commander, Le- Commander Data level work here, people. Those Isoleneo chips better be a blur. And of course, remember the classic episode where, you know, all the chips have been pulled out and Data has to quickly put all the Isoleneo chips back in to save the Enterprise. Uh, that one made me laugh. I did look online uh, on YouTube to see if there was a clip of that scene, so I could try and figure out what episode. I didn't have time, but... I did see that somebody has made a ten-minute loop of just data ramming hexolyne chips into the wall, which made me laugh. Nice, yeah. Uh, and the other quote I had was when Mariner is on the uh, the ship with uh, with her friend, uh, um, uh, what was her name, Petra, the the archaeologist, and she says, uh, "I mean, how many big brown pots do we need anyway?" That was again. It seems like that's sort of the uh, the the nice nice dig on the digs, yeah. And her secret funding is from Picard. Yeah, that was pretty funny too. Because she thinks she thinks the worst. She thinks it's going to be something nefarious, and it turns out Picard is funding it because he's a huge archaeology buff.
2: Did uh, well. Uh, my my big question for this episode, which I I think was really great. We saw a lot of uh, character moments. We got to see the 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 wrap up of what exactly happened to Rutherford, and it, which has been dropped as hints for for quite a ways. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, did we get the canonical answer to why admirals go bad? Because it's like you hit this <laughs> stopping point in your career and there's literally nothing you can do to stand out except you hit a wall. You push hit a wall. the edge yeah. uh, of, of what's allowable. I mean, that was kind of Winnebingo's whole thing, right? Well, that's what he says. He says, I hit a wall. Yeah. Yeah. So you could have, you know, a meteoric rise as, you know, a cadet to ensign and et cetera, all the way through like tippity-top admiral. And then it's like, and then what? Federation president? I mean, what's what <laughs> what, what are you going to do next? Like you've capped out more or less on what uh, ends up happening in Starfleet's uh, command structure. Yeah, that's
4: a, you're right. It didn't occur to me that that was actually sort of a, an important canonical moment. But yeah, you're right. Maybe that's supposed to be the all-encompassing uh, reason why all these admirals lose their bananas. We certainly we saw it in Countless episodes. That was kind of the plot of the the third Star Trek Next Generation movie. Uh, yeah, it's it's funny. It's funny. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So he was, you know, the the latest edition of the the bad admiral trope, but I think gave us
3: the canonical answer for why they do what they do. Cool. All right, we'll move on to Prodigy. I'm not. I'm going to turn off my ears and not listen to you guys talk about it
4: you, with us. I, I, Jaime might disagree, but I I
3: really don't think you're going to miss out on much. This oh good because I yeah I was, I'm not that I'm
4: not that miffed about missing it but go ahead yeah I mean I, I think probably it's fair to say this this is our least favorite current Star Trek am I wrong Maybe you guys disagree yeah um, and and not because it's doing anything wrong it's just it's not really aimed at us it's definitely a, for a more of a broader audience and a younger audience but uh this sort of picks up right where we left off the end of the half seasons so we got the first nine episodes previously. And then now this is episode 10. It's called Asylum. Uh, my elevator pitch was its first contact time as the Proto Star crew reaches the most remote Federation station around. So, yeah, they basically they go and they they get their first contact with real Federation opposed to hollow Janeway. And uh, and it doesn't go well. I mean, what did you have for your elevator pitch? Pretty close. Mine was the, the Scooby gang
2: pitches themselves as asylum seekers to Starfleet, while Vice Admiral Janeway tries to unravel the mystery of what happened to Captain Chakotay. Mm, yeah, that's good. Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm. Kind of the two plot lines they had going on there. Yep. So basically, they the crew's all excited. They show up. They get to this place. We get a little bit of, you know, a little, little bit of Sort of plot moving forward in that we finally find out that, uh, you know, what some of these things are. We now know that Murph is a melanoid slime worm. Uh, we find out that the Federation has encountered Dal's race before, but they won't tell us what it is. That was kind of interesting. And, um, yeah, we, we basically get them going onto to this, this, you know, space station, which is, has this one guy on board. This poor Lieutenant Junior Grade who's been basically stuck out on his own, which seems... Like, you really must have done something wrong in order to get stuck out at the far end of the galaxy by yourself. Like, that's the... Uh, True, yeah. What was the, what was the guy's name? The guy um, who they kept screwing up on the TNG episodes and they kept, uh, kept seeing... The, the guy who saw things on the, the transporter. Oh, God, what was his name? Oh, Barkley. Reginald Barkley. Barkley. That's mm-hmm. right. This seems like a Reginald Barkley post where people are like, that guy's annoying. Let's just put him <laughs> on this space station by himself for a while. But uh, but yeah. yeah, basically what happens is that um, when the space station tries to download the information from the Protostar, the sort of virus, more or less that uh, the Diviner had put on board that he mentioned at the end of the half season, uh, gets into the space station and turns the space station against itself, and the space station basically starts to like you know blow them up, and you have this pew pew pew, and they all have to to. Uh, yeah, basically leap for safety and try and get back to the protostar. It was not the most compelling half season back episode I've ever seen. It really was not like a a great thing. Really the only thing that sort of came out of it is is the final line from this episode, which is uh, I remember everything, where where Gwyn gets her memory back, right?
2: Yeah. It's it's a it's a bridge, it's a glue kind of episode. Yeah. To go between the, the first half, which is them trying to escape from the Diviner and and get away to this second half, which is uh, getting together with Vice Admiral Janeway, right? As, you know, mm-hmm. she's coming into into play here. So um, it, it fits there as that sort of thing. Um, it does have a, a pew 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 action when the relay station blows up real good. Um, it's yep. fairly well armed for something that's just like... <laughs> uh, uh, uh uh you know telecom wi-fi uh mobile network kind of tower yep yeah uh, my my big question is you know what did happen to chakotay because it's uh it's real clear that he was you know given command of the protostar and uh although jane was like there ain't no way in heck you're gonna get me back in the delta quadrant chakotay was like you know it's fine I, i'll, I'll this new ship can go back and forth pretty quick and easy. It's not going to be a big difference. I'm sure the implicit idea is, why not send somebody who's got some experience and isn't going to go totally green? Even though you've got, you know, reports and everything, I'm sure that they fell out, But it's way different when you have actual hands-on experience. Um, but they've they've still been teasing. Like, what happened? How did the diviner end up with, you know, knowledge of the protostar and be able to to know enough about it to turn it into a you know virus Trojan horse kind of program sort of thing, which is what causes the the problems in today's
3: episode so let me ask you a question so if like what is the sort of age group do you think this show is pointing at, and is it compelling enough for them to continue watching it like and would they would they have waited out the time it took between the first season and the second season like and based on you know you guys have both watched animated series you know throughout your your lives, like Batman's and so on and so forth. What What do you think about those two questions? Who's it, Who's the demographic and, and would they have waited this long for a sec- another season? Mm-hmm. It feels like a couple different questions in there. I don't know how
2: modern children consume this sort of stuff and whether they're watching along as stuff occurs week by week and, and might be hurt by a gap like that, or if they just sort of you know, wander off because they're going to lose attention anyways and then come back and go, oh, look, there's like five new episodes of this thing. Let me watch it. Don't, don't know what they do. I don't know that I um, certainly had regular watching schedules because back in the synchronous timing days, you kind of had to do that or get the parents to VCR something for you. Um, but there's probably stuff that I watched that was it has all occurred and I'm just watching VHS copies of it as the first time experience for me.
3: My experience with, with the young, younglings is, is, that, you know, based on Jonathan's two boys and, and my current granddaughter is that it's like, I watched the show. I want to see another one, or I want to watch the same show over and over and over again. Right. So I kind of like, but that's for, you know, sort of your younger, less than 12 year old kids. But, and I, I would think that a young teenager would watch this probably because their parents are into Star Trek, you know, kind of thing. But, what do you think, John? What do you think the? To...
4: Yeah, I I thought of this as more of a generation bridging show. So this would be the Star Trek you might watch as an adult who's a Star Trek fan. With your, I mean, eight eight to twelve, eight to fourteen, something like that, year old. I don't think it's strong enough to really hold a, a teenager's attention. As as the keeper of three modern teenagers, I, I can I can attest that the attention span might not be there for this, especially the week to week part of it. But yeah, the I think if you were trying to sit down and watch this I, again, I I can't see an eight year old seeking this out. But I think if you sat down with them and were like, "Hey, I'm a Star Trek fan. Dad watches Star Trek. This is Star Trek that I can watch with Dad or Mom," I think that might be something that that you could probably have as sort of that you know. As as we've talked joked about, we call it Starter track, right? I think for Starter Trek, especially if you're watching it with them and can sort of provide a few you know oh, that's actually really interesting because of this, and you know you could you could watch it with them and sort of engage them. maybe that's what they're going for.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's not like not like droids and Ewoks, which was obviously targeted at a much younger audience,
4: right? No, um, and, you know, there's there's some cutesy stuff in here, you know, there's, you know, Murph is, you know, it's, it's designed to sell plush toys, and, you know, there, there's some stuff in there that certainly would appeal to younger kids, too, but then there is some, you know, scarier moments, and, you know, and they, you know, Dreadnought mm-hmm. and Diviner are kind of creepy, and so I don't know that I would go much younger than, you know, seven, eight tops, and I can't see it holding right. a lot of attention for kids older than that. I think you'd have to be back into being more of a, uh, you know, a mature watcher who can be like, yeah, I know some of this is puerile, but at the same time, it's still canonical Trek and there's still some things to like and and enjoying it on that basis, which is kind of what we've been doing, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and as you sort of said, it
3: wasn't the 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 best Trek out there currently. I mean, I kind of wonder, like, like, what is the intention of this show? Like, who's it? Like, what? What? Why? You know, I mean, what's the why about this show? Because other than you, know, like you said, to bridge generations or or to gain new new fans, right? Um, mm-hmm. it's because Lower Decks is much more successful at that, right? Because it it's got every like it's almost like it's got enough you know fun and animation and antics to keep the younger audience going, and then of course it's got all these dregs for the older folks, right? and and you know, and the innuendos and all that kind of stuff and and the the four letter bleeps and all that stuff, right I think they can both be generation bridging shows, although I
2: would hesitate to have lower decks be one for like under teens, depending on your you know particular parenting style, whereas I think Jonathan's right that this one for prodigy can skew a little bit younger for the the lower end of the bridging. Although not super young because there is absolute peril in these shows, which is something we had talked about in the first half of the season of like, oh, by the way, the background of this story is child enslavement. And today I couldn't help but think, you know, they could sell a Happy Meal toy of each of these things with Murph you know he's cute and here's Gwyn in this medical pod and look it fills up with water so you too can simulate her ex- almost accidentally drowning <laughs> I was like holy shit this is this is scary man like, <laughs> this can't be for little little kids this is uh you know maybe like eight you know they're not gonna get nightmares and scream for this stuff
4: I'm drowning mommy I'm drowning like the Star Trek characters
3: yeah, yeah. Yeah, Toy Story three was pretty, pretty, uh pretty brutal too, though. In that sense, right? They had the big giant inferno thing that the dolls are all going to go into, right? That was mm-hmm. that was. I kind of looked at that scene and went, "Do I want my kids watching this?" Yeah. Well, you know, you have access to a seven year old. I think you just sit her down and see see how she does. Well, no, I mean, I your kids were around during that. Time, oh, for right? sure, it was yeah. like yeah. you know, of course, yeah. You know. Like even even the the big purple bear might have freaked them out. Yeah, right? fair, so, fair, yeah. Yep. yep, he was pretty. He was pretty nasty character that one. Yep, that was Kelsey Grammer, wasn't it? I think it was Ned
4: Beatty, actually. Ned Beatty. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay, so the the episode. Uh, sorry, Tim, we're going to get into it here, but the episode ends with uh, uh, Admiral Janeway, or or what is she? She's not Admiral. What is she? She's Vice Admiral. Admiral. Vice Admiral, yes. Vice Admiral Janeway and a couple members of her crew show up at the original mining site where they had left the Diviner and they find the Diviner there and they're like, well, we better take him down from there and ask him some questions. Uh, the idea would be that in the ninth episode or the or the half-season finale, we saw he looked into the face of Zero, which we know is supposed to create, you know, basically make you lose your mind. So what he will be, whether he will be restored to his previous nefarious self, how this all plays out and, and what he will do to or with. The real Janeway uh, is, is a real interesting question. And I imagine that's going to be a, a chunk of the second half of the first season. Yeah. My uh, my best quote was just, the, it was just the funniest one that they, you know, they're using the replicators inside the uh, the relay station and Jankum has got a huge plate of hot dogs and he's shoveling them in his mouth and he says, on earth they call these cylindrical, they call this cylindrical meat a hot dog, food fit for a king.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, mine was the multiple times in which uh, the junior grade lieutenant guy just kept saying the final frontier, like it's supposed to be all <laughs> yeah. inspiring.
4: Yeah, 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 yeah. I, like I say, it was. It was not. Uh, I, I, I guess again, I guess the whole the way that they start are starters. You, you look for a second half of a season premiere or a season premiere to to grab you to have a couple of things to hook on. The two things they try and use here are, uh-oh, Janeway's found the Diviner, and, and uh-oh, Gwyn remembers everything. So that's where we're supposed to sort of kick this second half of the season off with, well, now that she knows everything, what's that going to mean? And now that they found, you know, the Diviner, what's that going to mean? But it was not the grabbiest episode. It didn't really knock my socks off my feet, particularly because I watched it on the heels of watching the finale of Lower Decks, which I thought was great. And a day after watching Andor and Power of the Force and a few days after watching House of the Dragon, which are all like really good TV this felt like the weakest thing I've watched all week by a by a distance. I think so. I think it's an artifact of the fact that
2: this show was hypothetically supposed to be on Nickelodeon. They shuffled it around and made it a Paramount Plus thing and then decided, you know what, maybe we can't have this kids show sort of carrying the torch for all our Star Trek stuff. We're going to split it and interleave uh, picard and stuff lower decks i feel like this would fit better and be less jarring to us as a uh, as a glue episode if this was just week after week this is just episode 11 um which is how it shows mm-hmm. up here they, they split the the nine in instead of one you know two episodes sorry one two hour or two half hour thing they made it just two episodes in paramount plus for me, this shows up as episode eleven, but whatever. The point is, it's just the next episode in a. You have a full twenty episode season. It's not a, you know, dun dun dun. Uh, we're 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 kicking things off for this second half kind of thing because it's again kind of a
3: lower. Yeah, it's a mi- it's a mid season return, right? Mm-hmm. It's not it's not a yeah yeah it's not a, a full season or beginning of a season. Yeah, and yeah. It, yeah,
4: again, it might be us making a mountain out of a molehill. Obviously the life of these things in the immediate moment is so short and then it's just streaming episode after episode which is what you know you, you talked to him about how do kids consume this i assume most of them don't but when they express an interest in mom and dad's enjoyment of star trek maybe the kid, the parents spool spool this up for them when there's like three seasons and you know 50 episodes they spool this up and say here sit down and watch this right
3: okay now we move on to Andor. Andor. Mm-hmm. Did you watch Andor?
4: I did watch
2: Andor. Cool. Uh-huh. Elevator pitches? Mine's terrible. It's literally just a jumble of
4: the various plot lines that are going on. Do you, do you have anything yeah. <laughs> uh, respectable for yours? Um, I just tried to boil it down to the two, which was, uh, Cass gets used to prison life on Arkina 5, while life on his former world of Ferex just gets worse and worse and worse.
3: Yeah, it was sort of a. I, I don't know if there was a, other than what you have got down here for Pew Pew. I don't think there was anything in this that was outstanding. I mean, it was interesting to sort of see Cass on on uh, Nakina Five, um, almost like he got a new job, and you know he he's basically playing out what we all feel like when we go work for a new company. <laughs> We're trying to figure out which way's up and how not to get your finger lose your finger in the middle of the machinery and. That kind of stuff, yeah. um, get the
4: widgets in the widget factory, yeah
3: yeah, and the and the you know the the way if you want to commit suicide, it's super easy, <laughs> yeah, you know, just get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, um yeah, so that, that I mean that is sort of an interesting, depressing thing, I thought for sure, as he was going in, and they were sort of saying the one guy hadn't shown up, I thought he was going to grab the guy's you know taser thing and and you know beat them all up and try and run away or whatever right and or when, or when the stormtrooper actually showed up around the corner, I thought maybe it was one of his his colleagues, you know, uh, who had broken in and was going to break him out, kind of thing. It, but that didn't happen. It, it just ends up getting deeper and deeper into the hole. Um, the other, the other uh, thing was, you know, finally, um, our young man, what's his name, um, Boimler, Carn um, finally gets Carn finally gets noticed. Just <laughs> trying to remember his first name gets noticed by by Miro and and uh, Cyril Cyril yeah and she just you know, like I love I love her demeanor. She's just especially the part where you know they're like, what what about this guy? Should we should we pull him out of the room? She says no, we'll leave him here. And then as soon as the other girl walks in, she says, what are you doing? Get him out of here. Yeah. <laughs> like mm-hmm. to make it look like it wasn't her sort of idea. But she's left him there. Obviously, the man's just been tortured. So you know, left his, left him, you know, hunched over in the chair, drooling, so that, you know, when the next question, or next interviewee comes in, they'll see, you know, how, how tough she can be as a questioner, but, and then at the very end of it, you know, she, Karn, Karn has his, his whole moment in the sun, he gets to sort of, you know, gets his vindic- vindication, you know, his, you, you think he's going to get, you know, maybe she's going to rope him in and make him a lieutenant, or something like that, or whatever, and she just says to him, forget about it, at the mm-hmm. end, you know, which is what, which is what his problem has been the whole time. Yeah, he can't, you know? yeah, yeah. Well, he's, but he's the only, See, you know, see, theoretically, I mean, he was the only one that kind of, besides her, that kind of realized that there was something, I mean, something wrong, but at a very lower level than her. I mean, she's obviously put together a whole uh, series of things, right? But I like her as a character. I really like, I'm, you know, it's funny, <laughs> I think I was talking about this last week, I think, you know, it's, it's kind of weird that you end up rooting for the bad guys. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah. Like you, you kind of want Cyril to get his to get his day in the sun, and you want Miro to be, you know, to be the winner of all the of all the evil doers, you know.
4: Even though what she's trying to do, you know, intuitively is going to hurt your heroes. So it's yeah, you're right. It's it's, yeah. it's but that's good yeah. writing, right? Like we, we've talked about it in the past. What makes good sto- hero stories is good villains, right? right? You need to have a strong villain with a moral certainty. You know, what we can look at them and be like what you're trying to do is wrong, but that they are morally certain they are doing what is right is what makes them really compelling characters. Yeah. For well in the same sense that the Sam Jackson
3: character in Glass is is, you know, yeah. Bruce Willis's ne- Nemesis and he's such an such a likable character, you know? Mm-hmm. And they they build up the empathy of him and then he turns out to be these, this, you know, arch villain, right? Yeah. But don't get many arch villains in 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 life you know but uh you know Darth Vader was originally one of them and then they kind of made him
4: soft and cuddly and well Boba you know Fett I mean? right is a perfect example he was this sort of dark mysterious masked stranger and then they were like well what if he walked around and he helped little kids and he didn't put his mask on anymore and you're like what if what if he did that and I didn't watch well and
3: even even um you know I keep go back to Han Solo you know when he when he pulls out his blaster and shoots Greedo. I mean, that's such a badass move. And then they softened him up, you know, by like, by taking away his, yep. his uh badassness, right? Mm-hmm.
4: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh the the only other sort of conflict, we talked last uh episode about the great sort of verbal jousting match that happens in the um ISB room when they're when, you know, mm-hmm. Dedra is defending herself against uh Blevin and they're they're having the most civilized knockdown, dragout fight you've ever seen. I, I found the same thing when when uh, watching the scene between uh, Stellan Skarsgård as Luthan and Forrest Whitaker back as, in his role as Saw Guerrera, which he's of course carried through from from uh, you know Rebels and or Clone Wars and Rebels, and then into Rogue One, and now he's back playing this character again. Oh, was he was he the character in before Rogue One? He's the one in Rogue One uh,
3: where... He... No, I know who he yeah. is in Rogue One, but, I mean, was he in Rebels and... and Or are you just sort of saying in the timeline? No, 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 no. Was he's he...
4: he's in them. So uh, back but in but Clone Wars... War, what I'm asking,
3: though, what did he do first? Uh, was he the in Rogue actor,
5: One first? Yes. Like,
4: yeah. I'm he was to in Rogue, Rogue One and they brought him back to do the voices and the other things. Okay, okay. So, yeah, Rogue One came first. Okay, yeah. cool. All right. Yeah. but uh, But that scene where the two of them are these... Sort of hard rebel leaders saw in particular, you know, covered in scars, uh, you know, wearing, you know, armor to protect the body damage that he suffered. And the two of them are kind of taking the piss out of each other, but they're also kind of, uh, you know, feeling each other out. I thought that was just a wonderfully yeah, acted a dance. scene between it's the two of another them. Dance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, just again, verbal jousting. I, I, I really love when you get two great actors and just let them cook. And that scene, the two of them. Again, it's not an action scene, but oh, it sizzles. It's got such interesting tension and, you know, it's like watching a sword fight or something where, you know, the barbs are going back and forth. And you're like, who's going to land a blow? You know, was, I thought that was great. Yeah, that that um, is probably the closest we had
2: to a pew pew pew, because it really it really wasn't one uh, of of note. It wasn't that kind of episode um, other than the electric floor. Yeah, that that I guess that could count. Uh, for, for that, because they they do make it pretty pretty clear that it's a you know like a mouse trap kind of place to to work at. My my Easter egg thing is a little obtuse along those same lines of like uh, imperial industrial design, which really heavily emphasizes raised floors above the workers. Right, we see that in the office cubicles for Karn. We've of course seen it on imperial star destroyers. To a lesser extent, it's kind of the same thing for where Cass is in the prison factory thing, where you go down to get to the floor of where the work floor is. It's very much an, an overseer, old school kind of uh, factory sort of setup mm. that a lot of these have. And it's pretty pretty consistent um, with, I think, visual storytelling of these are the superiors and these are the inferiors. I feel like it's very intentional uh, design here.
4: Yeah. Yeah, uh, you're right though. It's we've been complimenting as we go. We've been complimenting the the sets, the production. It it has a real feel to it. I mean, we obviously we we kind of joke about green screen and just the amount of stuff that happens in our in our favorite movies and TV shows now that is all green screen. This feels real. It feels very immersive. Yeah. It feels yeah. very tactile. Um my totally. Easter egg was obviously Saw. We saw the return of Saw Gerrera, which, you know, he's a character that's pretty influential across uh, a lot of different Star Wars properties. But, uh, if you hadn't recently rewatched Rogue One, you might not have recognized the face, but we did see a member of, of the Rogue One crew in this episode. So on the table working with, uh, with Cass is, uh, is Ruscott right? So he's... Ruscott Melshi is, is one of the crew of the Rogue One who goes on that mission with them and, like Cass and everybody else, ends up getting uh, killed on on uh, Scarif, but...
3: Is he the one that remembers his name? Because um, remember when they're, they're saying, hey, new guy, and he goes and he says his yeah, name? That's the, yes, that's the guy, yes.
4: And the one who, who starts talking really? to him when they're in the hallway and he starts saying, you know, give up hope, hope, hope. There's no point for hope here. He's the one who's kind of weird, sort of talking very quickly. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's Oh, right. uh-huh. cool. So, yeah, so this, it was very subtle and it wasn't overdone with like a someday we're going to die together, kind of, you know, overdone, overwrought kind of way. But, but yeah, this was kind of an important meeting where this is the first time these two critical players and what will be a, a very, very fateful mission for the rebels uh, that get to meet each other. So that, that's kind of neat. Yeah, for sure. My... They said what quote is technically
2: not a quote because I was far too lazy to write everything down here, but <laughs> I'll describe it as a go watch Andy Circus room manager and his entire onboarding session speech to, yeah. to cast about being like the most competitive yeah. room and etc. Like it is uh, pretty interesting that you
4: kind of learn everything you need to know about this character purely through this mm-hmm. speech and the portrayal. And, and nobody at any point thought to say, you know, you remind me of a character like Snoke. Is it Snoke? Oh, right. Because <laughs> <laughs> of course, this is not Good Andy Circus's Star Wars debut. He's been in three movies. Well, two, two in a bit. He's That's his body true. in a tank in the third one. But, but yeah, this is uh, you know, he was Snoke in the in the most recent trilogy of Star Wars films. So yeah, and interesting uh, to get him back, but actually as himself, he's. I find. Uh, wildly underrated as an actual actor, as opposed to a motion capture actor. Uh, not that they aren't both equally important, but I find that he he doesn't get the credit he's due sometimes as an actual actor. Because I find him really engaging, and he's great in this role as uh, what's his name, Kino Kino Loy, the the, the sort of room supervisor. I got this much time on my sentence, and you're not gonna mess it up for me. You know, like you you you're right, Jaime. You kind of learn everything you need to know about this guy just by listening to him talk and and the way he talks to the other inmates he's just like you know this is the deal you know you do what I say or well and the quote the quote I had for they say what is get busy or get fried right that's his that's his line to cast when he's getting at the table the other uh they said what that I had was from Luthen who says uh we need them angry talking about the the people of the galaxy we need them angry we need them count uh, we need them coming or sorry he's talking about the empire he says we need them angry. We need them coming down hard. Oppression breeds rebellion. I thought that was again very well written. Indeed, indeed. Um, the other thing I wanted to shout out on this episode was, and, and and Tim, I I think this is something that you probably caught as well, was the the music that they played inside of the prison. That synthy nineteen seventies ish kind of very mm-hmm. you know synth industrial. You, you mentioned um uh you know the Kubrick the, of it all. You mentioned the you know, 2001, it kind of had that that sterile environment, that synthy sound. To me, it really kind of felt retro sci-fi-y. But yeah, that that definitely caught my ear as well as my eye. And it's interesting that they're not just doing this sort of one music palette, which, you know, obviously John Williams has set an incredibly high bar across Star Wars, and there have been other uh, composers that have now worked in in Star Wars this is kind of going a different direction and it's it's really interesting the way they're using music to sort of set the tone for these places. Yeah, sure.
3: The other thing too, speaking of of 2001, so you know the very beginning of the, the show, you can watch, you get the preview and then you get the little the little uh, helmets and the, and you can push the button to skip the intro. Mm. So you skip the intro and then the actual intro for the show comes up and the first thing you see is a planet as the sun's coming down, coming up, to the bottom of it and i keep waiting for australia sarasusa to come on <laughs> and for the you know the monolith to float in the screen right yeah, because yeah, yeah. that rem- that scene is totally reminds and it's, of course it's the andor logo but to- I, I, somebody should put the 2001 theme over which is what the name of that song is um what i just said earlier um they should put that over top of the andor thing just for for science because it to me it's like almost the same beginning of the same
4: movie right <laughs> I, i'm going to give you five out of ten on your german pronunciation but yes good good try <laughs> oh, well, it's a german thing isn't it? it it is it's a yeah all sie all i
3: know is Aldo Spach, i don't know the zarisuster part yeah. whatever otherwise known as the 2001 theme because nobody but you can pronounce it uh anyway yeah all right house of the dragon House of the Dragon. Well, the, my pitch is: How long do we have to wait? Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's the big question.
4: That's a hundred percent the big question. Wait, wait a minute. When is season two? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All we will remember is that look on her face. Yeah, yeah. So my pitch was: uh, Rhaenyra ponders a path to peace when she learns of the High Tower coup, but a fateful decision seals a path to civil war. The Dance of the Dragons has begun.
3: Mine is there's always a bigger fish. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely that feel. Uh, mine is uh, simply the blacks learn of the
2: king's death and the usurpation of the, of the throne and prepare for war
4: with the greens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love these two episodes, the ninth and 10th, together. They really are beautiful sort of mutual pieces if you watch them individually they're both great there's great performances there's great moments there's important stuff that happens but if you look at the two of them as sort of side-by-side pieces and you look at uh princess Renice as the glue between them because she's there while it's all going down at king's landing and then she's there while it's all going down on dragonstone and she's basically in the moment in on king's landing she's taking the measure of king uh, of uh, queen Alicent, right she's basically saying to her you know, don't you want to be like, why are you going, breaking your back to put this, you know, rotten kid of yours on the throne? Why don't you be the queen and rule? And and she's sort of taking the measure of her. And in this episode, we see her really taking the measure of Rhaenyra, who she has every reason to hate because she suspects that she had something to do with the death of her son and, you know, obviously did not conceive children with her son. Although, you know, wouldn't you think the mom would know that her son was... Gay, but anyways, um, yeah. But yeah, I, th- I think when you look at these two episodes side by side, and you look at the parallels through them, and you look at the path where the Greens are so desperate to to jump on the power and and to make all these decisions, and and it's it seems so nefarious. Whereas you know, Rhaenyra is is yeah, she's she's basically you know she finds out this horrible news, she has this horrible birth experience where she you know has a stillborn child, and yet she's still not gonna be like, to hell with this, get me a get me a sword, we're going into battle. She's still trying to be measured. That is until what happens, happens, right?
3: Yeah, well even even like the whole the whole way through it and, and I think I think when you remarks on it, the fact that she's the only one in the room that's that's remaining calm throughout this whole thing, right? And and you know, strategizing as a leader should, you know, like like Damon's, you know, ready to write off and he's already he's already got plans in place and moving pieces on the chessboard kind of thing, right? And she's very calmly evaluating the situation because cause at the end of the day, she knows the prophecy, right? Mm-hmm. And and even the scene where, you know, where there's a scene where Damon, you know, grabs her by the throat and is, you know, threatening her, like, you know, her very existence. And at the end of it, when he lets her go, she looks and she says, he, he never told you. Yeah. And I assume she's she's talking about the prophecy, like her, the the king only confided in her, right? Yeah. And that's when you realize um, that, yeah.
4: you know, it's funny because the whole thing at the beginning of the series, if you'll recall, was, you know, Damon thought that he should be the next in line for the throne uh, because there was no male heirs. And then they say, no, it's going to be Rhaenyra because they, they did not want Damon because he was ill-tempered, they didn't want him to become another Maegu or the Cruel and be a king who, you know, tortured and hurt his people. So that's why uh, Viserys ended up naming Rhaenyra. But she's always kind of doubting it, right? She's like, well, maybe he was going to pick Damon, but he, this was just sort of a punishment. Maybe, you know, maybe there was always someone else. But in the end, when she has that moment where she says, well, you know, of course, the prophecy, and he realizes that he had been kept out of the loop. That's why he, I think he grabs her by the throat. He's, he's obviously angry with her. And, you know, again, not that there's any excuse for ever grabbing a woman by the throat, but he's in that moment realizing that he was left out of the circle, that he was never gonna be the guy. He was never on the short list of being the ruler, because if that was the case, Viserys would have shared that information. So it's that moment where he realizes that his brother is dead and gone and that he clearly never trusted him. And I, I you know again, there's no excuse for for grabbing your wife by the throat and and being, you know, as monstrous as he is to her in this moment. But I think it's that moment of anger loss and disbelief that he thought all along he was like, you know, 1A, he was never 1A, he was always B or 2. Yeah. Yeah, or even 6 or 7. Well, that's it. I mean, if, if you actually go by real lines of succession, he would be like, yeah, well down the list now because if you would go through the the members of uh, Rhaenyra and her family, then you would go down Allison's children, you know, he would be well down the list at this point. Yeah. But uh yeah, yeah that's a very upsetting scene and I I Listen to an excellent podcast. the um, The Ringerverse podcast this week uh, did a great bit where they had two female hosts, of course, that they always do, talking about House of the Dragons. But they were talking about just what that was like from a women's perspective. That he, in his anguish and his frustration, decides his his moment there is to grab his wife by the throat. It's a very upsetting scene. There has been this weird dynamic all season. I've seen certainly a lot of memes. I'm sure you guys have too of, you know, ooh, baby, Matt Smith is, as Damon. What a hottie. Like, no, he's supposed to be like very unstable and not a great guy. I mean, he murdered his first wife. <laughs> like, he, he's not a great guy. He's he's yeah. really the epitome of what, of what George R.R. Martin tries to do with his characters is put him as solidly in the gray zone as he can he's capable of great heroism and great uh goodness but he's also capable of equally of horrible violence and cruelty and in this moment we see that come to the fore where his wife has just gone through this horrible trauma of losing their child she's found out her her father is dead she's found out that her her uh half-brother has stolen the throne from her and he's thinking about himself and he takes it takes out his bad feelings on her i mean this guy's an ass, a real piece of work
3: well e- well even even the even the um the tongue you know he can keep i'll have your tongue for this uh, scene i mean like that his solution to it was was i mean he basically went on he went rogue in, mm-hmm. in fact i mean even though he did solve a problem for a lot of the people in the room, you know it was the king's decision, not his to do that
4: right yeah. so beyond that, the biggest obviously moment in this is is the scene um you know, at Storm's End. So, you know, they're trying to shore up who who's on their side. They send, uh, Joceris is supposed to go to the, to the Aerie where, uh, Rhaenyra's mom was from to try and shore them up. And then he's supposed to go to Winterfell to shore up the support of the North. And Luke, yeah, little Luke, who's supposed to be like 13, 14, is supposed to board his, uh, his dragon Aerax and he's supposed to go to Storm's End, which is closer. So, you know, not as hard on him. He's supposed to go down there, and he's supposed to give this scroll to uh, Borman Baratheon to re- you know remind him, which is never a good play of his oath. <laughs> and yeah. you know, of course, as soon as he la- you know, he's getting there through rough weather. He lands. He lands in the courtyard. He looks to his left, and there's the biggest dragon in the in the the whole of of Westeros, Vagar, mm-hmm. you know, munching on some goats off to the side. And he goes in and of course, you know, he basically gets, you know, the B- Baratheons basically say like, you know, you're not doing anything for us. You know, this guy is going to marry one of my daughters and, and, you know, I'll have my daughter at the royal court. What are you going to do? He's like, well, I can't do that. And then there's this conflict, of course, between Aemond and, and Luke. And, you know, it, he basically says like, you know, I'll, I want your eye in exchange for my eye. And he's sort of escalating the fight. And it looks like things are going to cool down when Baratheon basically says, you know, I'm not going to have, you know, two princelings fighting in my hall. Uh, you guys take it outside, basically. And we see uh, we see Lucerys uh, jump on board Aerax and take off into the storm. And you think, well, maybe, maybe he's going to be okay. And then, of course, we get... Yeah, no way. We get yeah. this... Yeah. Well, so let me ask you guys... When this was going on, did you think that it was going to end in one of them dying, particularly luke like until it happened, did you think that that there would be a fatality out of this i didn't I didn't think about fatality, but I
3: didn't think it was going to end up well i di- i di- certainly didn't think that that Amen was going to get hurt, so you're right i suppose I, I I was worried more about Luke than the young kid than than um the older one right mm hmm mm-hmm. it was a pretty
2: mismatched fight if anything was gonna i figured somebody was gonna get injured at the very
3: least uh to to stoke the the flames of war mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it was still mm-hmm. kind of surprising. yeah. But it, this is what starts a war though is it something like this
4: this is an act of war right uh yeah the killing of a of a, of a prince future, yeah um, mm-hmm. i mean this is prince, this is second yeah. in line to the you know so if renera is now theoretically the queen and Jace is first in line. Luke is second. He's he, at this point he is first in line for the the you know to be the Lord of the Tides and second in line to the throne. It's not a little thing. This is a major thing. But uh, well, he does for he does foreshadow
3: himself when he says like you know I'm too little. Nobody's going to take take me seriously. Like you know I'm I'm not the the warrior. I'm not the master of ships. You know that that my uh, my grandfather is or is a yeah. grandfather yeah, yeah, grandfather. Yeah. Yeah, so, yes, grandfather is true. Um, you know, I, I'm not him, like, you know, like, I don't have his skills, I'm not, you know, adept with the sword, I'm not, you know, you know, I'm not a, I throw up whenever I sail, you know, kind of thing, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Which would be kind of important if you were going to be the master of ships, you but know?
4: Well, it's funny, too, because they, they do say, you know, well, you know, who would want, I think it's the previous, it was two episodes ago when... um the Valerian's brother is in the court and he's saying, you know, well, you know, I, I should be the new Lord of the Tides. This shouldn't be this boy. You know, would you want the boy to be leading the Navy? You know, it's not like they would be like, OK, cool, you're 100 percent in charge. Of course, he would still have, you know, an entire veteran he'd number a hand of, of some type. Yeah, yeah, Like, give me a break. Yeah. It's not like he'd be like, you're responsible now to lead us all to our deaths. But anyways, um, so they foreshadowed this fight between uh arax and vegar and luke and aemond earlier on when at uh dragonstone they start doing dragon math right we've got this many dragons they've got this many dragons and then um Damon sort of says you know our most of our dragons are not battle tested and dragons are dragons and dragons Fighting each other is a very scary thing, and we have to be careful because it's again, it's like starting a nuclear war. You just don't know how far or how badly this is gonna go. Everybody gets burned, he said. Well yeah. that's it, and then we see that coming to light where Luke and aemond are having one type of fight, and Arax and Vega are having a completely different kind of fight, and Arax is terrified. You see it, you know, they did a wonderful job with the the animation of of this little dragon who is just like you could see its heart beating out of its chest. It's like, oh my God, oh my god, oh my god. It's like watching a sparrow and an eagle, right? Like it it knows mm-hmm. if I don't do something, I'm gonna die. And so it's trying to listen to Luke and it's trying to evade. But then at one point it's just like I'm t I'm shooting my shot, and it basically takes a run at at Vagar to try and throw her off. Uh Vagar's a her, by the way. Um and you know, and all that does, of course, all that does is really tick it off, and that's what leads to Vagar being like, "Okay, that's enough of this," and ends up basically chomping uh, Luke and and Arax into pieces. But so just before
3: that happens, though, like as as uh, Vagar is moving up, does is Eamon saying, "You will listen to me. You will obey yes. me." because yes. I heard him say that he was talking to his dragon saying look you're I'm in charge here right both of them are saying the it because when now. when yeah. Luke
4: gets on Arax at first he's like you have to listen to me you have to obey this is really important and then they take off and then when they're you know going out and when he makes that sort of bomber run on on vegar he's like don't do this like why are you doing this but again you realize that you know It is. It's like, it's, it's like trying to contain a nuclear bomb. You're like, okay, I really want it just to hit this one spot. And you're like, that's not how these work. And the dragon's the same thing where, same thing, where once it gets that blast of, uh, once, once Vagar gets that blast of fire across her face, she's like, listen, I respect that you and I have this relationship, Aemond, but you know, I'm in charge here. I'm the, you know, the size of a battle carrier dragon and I am going to go kill this thing because it just shot fire at my face. And yeah, so you get a sense of like where this dance of dragons could get really interesting where we think of it as, you know, it's, oh, it's Allison's side versus Rhaenyra's side and everything else. But these dragons are not, you know, this is not sniper rifles. This is nuclear bombs. And when they go off, it's going to get messy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then
3: Eamon's, Eamon's expression was, oh my God, look what just happened. Like he wasn't
4: super thrilled about what happened, right? I think what he fully intended to do was torment Torment huh? his his cousin or his, monster, yeah. his yeah. cousin yeah. nephew. Um yeah. I think what he meant to do is torment him and and basically make him think like, well you have no chance, or embarrass him, or make him fall off his dragon and hurt himself or whatever. I think he wanted to humiliate Luke the way that he felt humiliated by the whole pink dread and all that other stuff. I think he knows, even in that moment, you see that look on his face after uh Vagar chomps the two of them to death, he's like, Welp, here we go, because there's no going back from this.
3: Yeah, exactly, uh, and it's kind of funny because you, you you kind of sort of see the kid tumbling, yeah, and you kind of wonder, like, hey, swoop down and rescue him, you know, like,
4: yeah, Do you have no, I, I, we don't actually <laughs> see Luke's body. We see parts of Arax falling. I think Luke is supposed to have been uh, either crushed or uh, consumed. consumed. Yeah, because they, yeah. Uh, I did, I did read an excerpt from the book that somebody had put on social media this week that basically says Luke's body was never found. So I think the idea is that mm. uh it ends up as a pile of dragon dung.
3: Yeah. I thought about buying that book today on Amazon, but then I then I thought, you know, I'd rather I'd rather just live through the 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 story on in this format and then, mm-hmm. you know, if I want
4: to read it later go back, mm-hmm. right? See the differences. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've I've been reading along as especially after the episodes, people will post a lot of that, you know, I follow a different, you know, bunch of blogs and, and social things where people are putting up excerpts and stuff like that. And I find that interesting after the fact, like, well, how did they portray this in the book versus the the thing in the moment? But I don't know that yeah, I that want to true. read ahead yeah. either. Uh, and I've heard from a few people that it's a, it's not George's best writing. It's, it is a little bit more like a history. It's almost like reading an encyclopedia with full of like point form entries. Yeah. It's not a narrative. It's not descriptive in the same way. So apparently it's not the most scintillating read um, other than obviously you get all these milestones, but um, It's funny because we always talk about the prequel problem, right? We talk about how setting things in a prequel is dangerous. But in this case, they set it far enough back that other than the fact that we know that by the time we get to Game of Thrones, there are only a couple of Targaryens left. So we know that it's bad. We don't know the circumstances unless you've read Fire and Ice or Fire and Blood. We don't know uh, how everybody dies, when everybody dies, who lives longest who gets the throne in the end, all that kind of stuff. Like, unless you've read that, you, you don't know any of that stuff. It doesn't matter to the Game of Thrones part of it, right? I, I kind of like that as a prequel goes, right. it's not like mm-hmm. a generation before where you're like, oh, there's little Nettie who's going to grow up to be Ned Stark. Or, you know, like, it's not that. It's 170 years in the past. So it's far enough back that you're like, well... 300, 300 years, apparently. Well, they say at the beginning of this that it's 170 when it first starts. Oh, cause I, I read something the other day it was oh no maybe the book is 300 years in, in oh the book yeah the I, book I read actually goes further also. back than this this the, the this is not the first part oh, of the okay, book okay. the book goes 300 years back oh, okay yeah okay but uh yeah but this story that they're telling us the dance of dragons part of it starts 170 plus years in the past from game of thrones so right but right. It, again it's far enough right. back that like you know you can invest in these characters you can like these characters but you have to know that In the end, all of them are long dead by the time we get to what we know from Game of Thrones. It's just a matter of who, when, and and how awfully. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For
2: Uh, Easter eggs, is this the first time we've actually uh, witnessed Storm's end? Because it was mentioned a lot in Game of Thrones as the uh, family home of King Robert Baratheon,
4: but I don't think it was actually ever seen prior to this episode. You're 100% right, Jaime, and I wasn't sure about that, but I did look it up because I was thinking... Yeah, they mentioned it by name a bunch of times, but I don't think they ever showed it to us. And then I looked and know that this is the first time we've actually seen it on screen to see Storm's End, which is cool because this is a really cool set with the, you know, the, uh, I'm not sure it's all digital or whatever, but out there, sort of out this rocky outcropping out on the ocean and stuff like that. It's a really neat castle. Mm-hmm. I, uh, for mine, I just, it was the painted table, right? So we'd seen the painted table in the parts where, um, in... The game of thrones episodes where there is scenes where they're in that room there's scenes with the painted table we never see it lit up we never see it as its true purpose we do see uh, a scene where a couple people have sex on it in game of thrones but we don't actually get to see it illuminated as the war council table where you actually are like mapping out you know who owns what battles plans and stuff like that so to see them actually go through that scene where they light up all the candles and you see the table illuminated from below and it's the whole point is the table's made out of dragon glass, right? It's made out of, of glass, so that when you light it from below, you can see all the things that are carved into it and stuff like that. That was a really neat scene for me, because obviously that's an important uh, set in both Game of Thrones and in A Song of Ice and Fire, so that was neat. For, for my, they said what, I, I had to pull this one out, because it made me laugh in the moment, and it's just the most worst foreshadowing. Uh, Rhaenyra talking to Luceris about his trip to Storm's End, he, she says, I expect you will receive a very warm welcome. <clears throat> or you know, we will never see your body again. Or not. Yeah. Or not. Yeah.
2: That that's pretty yeah. similar to mine, where um, it it might have been Luke, uh, but it's definitely when Luke and Jake are talking to, uh, Rhaenyra about you know, oh, you can just send ravens, and they're like, nope, dragons are faster than ravens
3: and more convincing. Yeah, that's a great line. Yeah. Here's a quote from Damon:
4: Dreams didn't make us kings; dragons did. mm Hmm well because he's grumpy about obviously being left out of the prophecy right yeah it's uh and then of course we get that great you know again I, I, i'm emma Darcy and has been great in this since she came on as the adult ranyera but that that hard look on her face when she gets the news of jake uh of luke's death uh and you know she just sort of turns and faces the camera you see her face just turn to steel and you're like well here we go so yeah great ending moment but uh yeah, it, it's, it's, Sounding an awful lot like it's going to be 2024 before we see more episodes of this. Yeah, a long time. eh? Yeah, Mm -hmm. I I mean, as a Game of Thrones fan, I guess you you kind of you accept that that's part of the deal, but it's still after a really to sum up the whole season. Now that we've seen the all ten episodes, it was a bit of an uneven season. The fact that they were kind of jumping through time. Like I'm glad they started with the the queen and the princess as girls, and we kind of get to their dynamic, and I think that was interesting context in that. But changing the actors a a number of times, jumping through time, it's hard to build that rapport, the care. I was thinking about that in context of the first season of Game of Thrones. I was like, well, why did that grab us? What did we like? And I was like, well, really, it was about this family. We invested in this family. We got to know each of the characters in the family. And they all kind of go their separate directions. But they give us enough time to really invest in the actors playing them and the characters. I was thinking, well, what did I like and not like about this? And I would have to say, I felt more attached to the show once they sort of settled into a little bit more of the same actors playing the same characters over the last four episodes, five episodes. It it was a little as much as I loved, I loved, um, you know, the two actresses who played young Rhaenyra and young uh, uh, Alicent. I -hmm. think it was definitely both. Uh, performatively and also just stability-wise, it was nice to have faces and people that we could get behind and root for and everything else in these last few. And I think my understanding is that the next few seasons are going to focus, obviously, on this Dance of Dragons, this w- civil war between the Targaryens. Hopefully, we're going to get more time with these people, get to know them better, get more more of their motivations, everything else. So I think it'll only get richer as we go, as opposed to, you know, more of the, jumping time and and that stuff that we had gotten in season one. So I'm I'm excited about that. I'm excited about season two. Cool. So
3: um, Tales of the Jedi, I only watched the first three. Okay. Okay. Three? Maybe I saw four. Hang
2: on. I have to think about uh, what those were, because I didn't do separate uh, entries for those in my notes. I kind of picked and
3: chose, you know, well, the first one was about Ahsoka.
2: Yeah, the, yeah I, the, I wrote down my little is, summaries in here. The elevator yeah. pitch for the yeah. whole thing is, despite it being called uh, Tales of the Jedi, I, I guess Jedi is plural. There technically are tales about multiple Jedi, but really it focuses around character development for Ahsoka in Count Dooku, right? And filling in yeah. pieces yeah. of the yeah, puzzle do, like, for the
4: prequels. Yeah. So it's not like it have been Jedis a tale everywhere. of two Jedi's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah exactly. It should have been a, a tale of two Jedi's, yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, it really that's 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 what it is. It's it's essentially it's three episodes about Dooku and three episodes about Ahsoka. And jumping into different parts of their lives that sort of give you some backstory as to who they are, who they were, and how they got to where they're going. It was I, I will abstractly talk about all six of them, but not not spoil anything for you, Tim. It it was... Actually, I, saw, I watched the first four, I just realized. Yeah, it I was... Your notes. I think they were enjoyable. I think they were interesting. I think uh, they were beautiful. I think they've even stepped up the animation from, from Clone Wars into some really beautiful stuff they were doing here. Um, but there was nothing in here that I would consider essential. And I think that was my only quibble with it. I, I love Ahsoka as a character. I think Dooku's a really interesting character, too. I think I, I really like that they explored his character more in Clone Wars. He's kind of a superficial character, no disrespect to Christopher Lee, but they don't give him a lot to do in Episodes 2 and 3. Uh, so in Clone Wars, you really get a lot more time with him. You get to sort of learn what kind of person he is and learn and, and that. Here we get a little bit more of his backstory and why he turned, and we do get a couple, like, uh, I guess, is it episode... <laughs> Yes, it's episode 4. So you saw that one Tim, that's the one with uh with the Sith Lord, right? So that one is basically set during the events of the Phantom Menace. And so that one was I think that's about the closest we came to a really essential episode in here where we find out what happened to Yaddle, who we we did see as part of the Jedi Council during uh Phantom Menace. And did we see did we see her? Yes. She's mm-hmm. in she's a member oh, of the okay. council when when little Anakin goes in and sort of they do the whole thing where, you know, Yoda's talking to him and stuff like that, Yaddle is sitting off to the side. Um, and there's always been a discussion of, well, why was she there and not later on? So there was always a what happened to Yaddle uh, hive on the internet of why is Yaddle in there and what happened to her between episode one and episode two? Because we'd never see Yaddle again, nor not in Clone Wars, not in anything. And obviously we get some, some closure on that uh, here. but. It's, it's kind of a weird, you know, they're trying to build a case for the motivation why Dooku broke bad. It's not great motivation. I guess he, he just has a sort of uh, a way of viewing things. But it never really, like, the reason why he sort of says, you know, well, I want order. I want things to be, you know, black and white uh, is what he's saying here in this series it doesn't carry over very well into clone wars and it certainly doesn't carry over to his character in the movies. So I think it's nice that they've given him this backstory, but I really don't feel like it. It's a through line. Yeah. Well, it's, it's greater shooting first again. Like we yeah.
3: really need that exposition, right? We don't No, you know? Like leave, leave him to be an evil doer on his own. Like, you know, I don't want to know Darth Maul's backstory. And in fact, we do know Darth Maul's backstory because of clone wars or rebels, but, um, or no, I guess this is after. No, yeah, it's the, because it starts off with him and his brother, right? But, I mean, um, I, I don't know. I don't know if I really need to know that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I like when they take someone like Ahsoka and they do a fresh story on her. I'm not talking about this particular incarnation because I've only saw the first one. Um, but I, I don't need to know that that she's a, that the tiger didn't eat her because she's a Jedi. I mean, I knew she wasn't going to get eaten right from the get-go. Like you said, the prequel problem as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so... It's curi- I'm curious, though, about, about her facial markings. Did she have, like, little circles as an adult? can't remember. Yeah, her. Or as an yeah adult, those is that, are like, those are baby, part of her species faces. and there. Yeah. No, no, I, what I'm saying, though, is, like, the particular markings that she has as a baby, she's got, like, you know, a, a couple of white dots on her cheeks and her forehead. Does she have that in, as an adult? Yep. Okay. yep. Yeah, they—they they, like what I'm saying is like the pattern doesn't change. Is what I mean. Well,
4: right? I think like they do from children to adults, they do change a little bit. Obviously, as you grow, but yes, Ahsoka does. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, as she gets older. Yeah, Ahsoka the Great. Jaime, did you uh, did you have any high and, and lows on this one? Did you feel like uh, it was it's it, it's a worth a watch? It's an essential watch. Where does this fall for you? Hmm. I don't know if they're essential because it does feel like they're additive
2: to stories and, and filling in some pieces. They're very snackable. So I feel like, you know, what are they like 15, 20 minutes each? You could plow through them in an hour and a half to two hours tops or uh, do one a day at lunchtime or during, you know, coffee or tea break. And uh, I think feel pretty, pretty satisfied by what you watched. Pretty, pretty self contained for each of these um, episodes. Although they do work a whole lot better if you're familiar with the lore from the prequels or
4: from Clone Wars and um, uh, Rebels. Yeah, yeah. My only thought on this one is maybe it's... The Dooku of it doesn't seem to make sense to me because, yes, obviously there is a light and a dark storyline that they're telling here. The Ahsoka stuff makes sense if you're using it as sort of a pseudo-prequel to get more context for... Easily digestible parts of who she is, so that you can go into an Ahsoka series next year, right? Duku, the Duku of it all, I'm not sure has value, but maybe that's just us not seeing the big picture that Dave feloni or someone else has about tying stuff in with Duku down the road. It just seems incidental at this point. It, it's it seems like it's there as just something that they wanted, always wanted to do, and never really had time for, and they just decided to stick it in here, but. Because you've sort of sold this as like, ooh, it's a special thing, Tales of the Jedi, it just feels extraneous. Yeah. But I'm glad I watched it. I I was very genuinely impressed by the quality of the animation. Oh, like even the ships and stuff like that, and the Mm -hmm. planets and things, It was amazing. Just some of it looked like, you know, like uh, Ralph McQuarrie, some of it looked like matte paintings like they used to do for the movies. Uh, Just the quality, you know, some of the details in people's faces and stuff that they... It was 2.0 of Clone Wars animation in a very positive way. I I think it looked spectacular. Um, So if this is the standard that they're going to hold themselves to doing these kinds of pieces, you know, moving forward, yes, please, more. Yes, please. Um, Tim, I I, I would love to... uh, I'd love for us to be able to circle back to this next week because the final episode overlaps with some of the stuff from the Ahsoka novel, which I know you have uh, yeah, read, read that. So I'll be curious for us to circle back on that one next week and get your thoughts because it kind of tells a parallel story but kind of changes the story a little bit. So, yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll have to talk about <laughs> that one. Have you read the book, too? Or? Uh, I have not read the book, but I am familiar with the plot points. So it's, I've had it on my uh, Audible subscription for a while now and I, I have not made the time to listen to it yet. Coolio. Alright, well let's move on to our watch list then. So what you got? Yeah, I've got uh the new season of Big Mouth. I'm uh I, we've I've talked about it on the pod before. I'm a big fan of the Big Mouth TV show and its uh sister series, uh human resources. Uh the Big Mouth is by far the best of it, obviously centered around the the, you know, uh sexual awakenings, trials and tribulations of this group of kids and the the um, you know, myriad of weird and wonderful monsters that represent their anxieties and their their budding sexuality and stuff like that. It's just, it's so super funny. It's really well done. It's thoughtful. It's sweet. And it's genuinely, uh, I think, you know, if I, if I was a teenager watching this, I had to learn some stuff. So I think there's a lot of value there too. Um, and I can't wait. And, and you know, I've, I've watched the trailer for it. It looks great. Season two is, uh, it, or season two, sorry, season six is coming out on October 28th. So for us, that is, uh, that is Friday. And, uh, yeah, can't wait, can't wait to get into more of that. And I'm just going to hastily type this in so that you don't cut me off. But I did watch Last Night in Soho this week. Have you guys watched Last Night in Soho? Oh. Have you not seen that one? No. So, like Tim, I am a fan of Edgar Wright's movies. I had not made time to watch this yet because I was kind of waiting for all the stars to align uh, where we could all watch it as a family because also my wife and my son are fans. Uh, he was away this weekend, so my wife and I said, to heck with it, we're just going to watch it together. So I did watch it. And I would say it's not his strongest work storytelling-wise. I did not think it was the best story he's done. Visually, his film making of it, some of the shots and some of the the way that he filmed things were really interesting, and I did enjoy some of that. Uh, And the performances were great, but it was a bit too uneven and a little bit... um, it was a little bit of a hurry-up-and-wait movie. There was a lot of stuff that sort of like, well, they didn't really explain that well enough for me to care yet, kind of, parts of it. Um, but again, it was certainly well worth a watch. Certainly, definitely worth a second watch. I'm looking forward to a second watch of it because it's it's sort of a murder mystery kind of piece. And so you are kind of watching along, trying to sort of piece things together. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was not as... Consistently good from beginning to end, as some of Edgar's previous films were. Tim, what what did you think of this one?
3: It was okay. I mean, uh, like you said, it's still very very much like an Edgar Wright movie, like very in terms of well well done and stuff like that. But um, um, I don't know if there's, there's a movie
4: by um, uh, Woody Allen starring Owen 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 Wilson. The the it's like it's last Last Night in Paris or something like that, or last. Yeah,
3: a very very similar kind of mm-hmm. story. Is this one sort of a you know like yeah he
4: takes a wrong turn walking the streets of Paris and all of a sudden he's in the past yeah yeah something like that yeah and then um,
3: so this this kind of sort of had the same sort of thing it's like it's like the the ghost in the room that she lived in trying to communicate to her about you know some wrongdoing or whatever and then this mysterious guy in the present that is connected to you know, this womanizer, is connected to, you know, the Matt Smith character in the past, right? Um, It was, I mean, that was an interesting, it was an interesting, an interesting pitch, but I don't know, I mean, you know, if if I had to watch this or
4: Shaun of the Dead, I'm going Shaun of the Dead every time. Yeah, I mean, obviously this is done less... (laughs) You know, obviously he's he's an evolving filmmaker. He's certainly not telling the same types of stories that he always yeah, was, and yeah. I think that's a f- well, fine thing. Well, even thing. Even, um, even even
3: even uh, somebody versus the world, uh, Scott Pilgrim. I mean, that's another great movie too. Well, right? I mean, his
4: most recent one was Baby Driver, right? Baby Driver is a uh, t- Baby
3: Driver's a great movie, and I yeah. and I still have one problem watching that movie. And I think you know what it is. Yeah, Rants right? like, with
4: sniffing. But snazzy. it was a great
3: movie. I'm... Yeah, I'm sorry I'm so, that got stolen away from us, right?
4: Yep. Yeah. And... but you know what? I'm still going to watch that. I'm still going to watch LA Confidential. There's lots of movies that, you know, he's an undeniably good performer. It's just, it just leaves a bad taste in your mouth that he's not apparently a, a good human being, but, but. um yeah. Well, he's, he's
3: like Jar Jar Binks. he just skip over those.
4: Yeah, things. yeah. If we only could get, uh you know, somebody to come in and, and CGI a different face on there, but uh if only Christopher Plummer. was. Oh, around. Chris, we miss you, buddy. Anyway, yeah. No, <laughs> that was it was a good watch and it was well worth it. I, we also for the record, I not a genre picture, but we watched um United States versus Billy Holiday this week as well. And the United States versus the United you? States versus Billy Holiday, the jazz singer. Oh, Billie Holiday, yeah. That yeah. Uh, again, came out a couple of years back. It had been on sort of the we should watch this list and we watched it and it uh it's a it's not the best movie, but the performance by the actress playing Billie Holiday is incredible. She's mm-hmm. incredible mm-hmm. in it. So, well worth a watch on that one, too. Yeah,
3: yeah I've seen some good portrayals of her in the past, too. Mm. Yeah, and I was actually listening to a friend of mine's show. I listened a friend of mine. It's funny, one of the guys I grew up with, I sort of said, you know, you should do a podcast. And he's like, ah, nobody would listen to me. Now he's been doing a podcast for like three or four years. What do I know, right? Um, but they reviewed... The Marilyn Monroe movie, and I'm glad they did because they convinced me I don't ever need to see this movie. I mean, I I like Marilyn Monroe as a person, you know. I realized she, you know, she had a she like like Elvis. She had she was in a tough place in terms of where, where society put her and all that kind of stuff. But just the the sound of the abuse in this movie, just I just don't need to go. Like you know, Eugene said, you know, he started watching it and it was like watching this horrible story, and it just got worse and worse and worse and worse to the point where he stopped watching it. <laughs> You know, and uh, his co-host, uh, who I also went to school with, apparently, um, she said the same thing. It was just it just got it just you know, she watched the whole thing, but it just kept going on and on and on down this rabbit hole of horrible, horrible people. Right. Anyway, so don't Our, our we're telling you not Blonde is the name of the movie. Don't don't watch Blonde is our advice to you.
2: And Jaime, what do you got? I have a uh, video from Steve Shives, whose content I've uh, linked to before with his discussions around uh, Star Trek stuff. This one is a little bit different in that it's about why streaming series are so poorly paced and how he thinks they should be fixed. That's worth a watch. It's 25 minutes. The general gist is that so many of these streaming shows, which tend to be, you know, 10 episodes, you're talking on the low end at 30 minutes a piece. That's five hours of content on the high end. That's 10 hours of content. And when you take a three act structure, which works great for a, you know, two to three hour kind of experience, it starts to meander or wane, especially in the middle or using that same structure across a a 10 episodes. And certainly we've talked about the hold my beer moments of like, man, it kind of feels like nothing really happened. And suddenly they're going to have to shove everything into the last part of it. And he proposes a structure that is built more like, a uh, an album a, a music album and he uses uh springsteen uh um, what is it darkness on the edge of town as his example of like you know each of these sorts of things stands alone but there's like a through line and and it's not all the same all the way across and there's a consideration between what the a side and the b side was like so it's not like all of the same songs are on one side and then all the same songs on another there are moments you can have to uh, continue your through line, but also try something a little bit different along the way to change it up. So his sort of breakdown comes down to having a side A and a side B. So episodes one through five, uh, six through 10. Make sure you get the inciting incident right up front in episode one so that there is some sort of thing that happens and you don't have a, man, nothing really happened for like the first three episodes. And make sure you have, you know, these plot points spread out throughout the season, so that it always feels like you're building to something and that you have even a minor, small resolution kind of in the middle before you make your way to the major ending, the end of the 10 episodes. I think that probably fits pretty well, and I kind of almost feel like some of the things that we've enjoyed for, like, Star Trek Strange New World, where it's maybe kind of like that kind of structure. It's loosely 10, you know, kind of interrelated episodes, but they don't necessarily... Follow one after the other, even though there is an overarching theme and endpoint to that. And we felt on this show that that worked pretty well, as opposed to some you know, other shows where we're like, hey, okay, what episode three kind of need to start going here. Kind of feels like the second half of the series was better than the first half. I feel like there's some some ideas here that people can take if
4: they're ever asked to write these kinds of series. Well, when we get around to writing our series, before we start. Exactly. Cool. I guess that's it for another week. So hey Jonathan, if you want to get in touch with you, where will they find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram as at JPK News or on YouTube as YouTube.com slash JPK.
3: And how about you? How many people get in touch with you? I'm on Twitter as at Deva there. Alright, and my name is Timetra, T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A. On all the things, but mostly the Twitter machine is where well. you'll find me. So until next time, we'll see you in the future. Bye. 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 You've been listening to the Spockcast
2: Podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast or see the episode show notes, visit the Spockcast website at spotcast.com. You can get in touch with us on the website or follow us on Twitter at Spockcast. If you have feedback or questions, send us a tweet with the hashtag AskSpockcast. If you like the show, please consider recommending us to a friend, writing a review on iTunes, or pledging any amount at patreon.com slash
4: On Twitter, when Twitter turns into a hate-filled apocalypse next week, or
3: (laughs) you know, Mark asked us the exact same question at the end of more than just code the other day too. Yeah,
4: I've been keeping a close eye on it because obviously I have to make recommendations to the organization based on what the landscape looks like, and I'm just I, it's like watching a it's like watching a tire fire off in the distance and hoping it doesn't spread. Yeah, yeah, can't be good. Yeah, I mean he's, he's he's saying the right things. But we'll see. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it's hard to say what the future of that platform is going to be. My concern largely yeah. is around
2: what's going to happen to the actual content that's allowed on there, or the kinds of people and the yeah. things about. Because his philosophy and worldview and politics align with some folks who probably are better off on other. Things like Truth Social and Parlor and other, mm-hmm. like, if you want this kind of stuff, here's the mud. You can just go deep into it as far as you want. If he doesn't let that get out of control, the upside that I see is that, in my opinion, I think Twitter's product management and business development skills were next to nothing. I don't understand what any of those people do because they... Largely didn't invent anything that Twitter is actually known for and seem to just sort of putter around with weird random stuff. And if there's nothing else, the focus that he can bring towards, we are going to ship features, maybe some of them won't work too well, but given his, you know, uh, throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks attitude with Tesla and SpaceX, they've been pretty successful from a, you know, building features kind of standpoint. So I I believe that Twitter will rapidly evolve from a, you know, user experience standpoint. So hopefully the the kind of crowd that's allowed to use those features and, and, you know, not do terrible things to each other will be kept in check because that is the upside is that Twitter largely just been like, oh, is Instagram and Snapchat doing stories? I guess we'll do stories too. Oh, uh, does Clubhouse exist? Okay, I guess we'll do... You know, virtual telecoms too. It's like, what? What do they even pay you for? Like, I could just have the engineers be like, "Hey, go copy this feature." All right, hey, go copy that other feature. Cool. Like, if you're not actually creating, what are you? What are you doing? Right? And they've they've kind of culturally
4: always been like that uh, at Twitter. Really, yeah. really strange. It really is just a matter of how much that culture changes now. Yeah, yeah.
2: There was a uh, a bit of backpedaling he seems to have done where it seems like he's not going to fire 75% of the staff. I guess that was just <laughs> bluster, but there were people with, uh, you know, after he is official here, people with like Thanos memes of him, like snapping the, the dusting the, the employees in the, in the, uh, in the office. We'll see. see what happens there.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully, I mean, I don't know from, from our perspective, things have become pretty challenging in, on, on the meta side and, Twitter's obviously in a bit of a uh, transition phase right now. It's uh, strange when like LinkedIn is the last bastion of like you know civilized discourse. I don't know. That's true. Yeah, it pretty
3: much always has been. It started out as a business tool, and it's kind of sort of stayed that way. They haven't really got
4: crazy with things yet. No, but mm-hmm. uh, and, and hopefully they never do because it's a safe space right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has its problems, but yeah.
3: Yeah. And and other social networks have tried to come up and, and, and replace these uh these things,
4: but you know. Yeah, the problem is is that they're they're getting too big, right? Like the, the, the players in the game are so capable of just, oh, well, we'll just buy Snapchat and that'll be the end of that and you know, like that's the stuff that kind of it seems almost anti-competitive, right? Like anything that comes along that has mm-hmm. a feature that they like, you may name again, Instagram went to meta Snapchat, like all these things. It's just like, yeah, if, if the big fish gobbled the little fish, all you're going to have left is big fish. Right. Mm. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. I didn't realize that, uh, Facebook had bought, uh,
3: is it WeChat? Um, until I actually no, Not WeChat. Just, you must be yeah, talking about,
4: just... uh, WhatsApp. WhatsApp. Yeah. WhatsApp. Yeah. WhatsApp. Yeah. Yeah. What's up, yeah. yeah. I love it how people make the distinction, too. I have people all the time being like, well, I'm on Instagram, but I'm not on Facebook. Or I'm on WhatsApp, but I'm not on Facebook. And I'm like, it's the same. You, you're you're deluding yourself. Like, it yeah. doesn't matter. You yep. just, just move on. Mm.
3: Shared code base. Yeah. And again, you know, like the whole, like, you know, like, we're we're obviously on Facebook because that's how we keep in touch with, you know, like three quarters of our family around the world, you know? Yep. Um, you just don't have to buy into all the crap there, right? So. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, and you know, as somebody who you know makes us living in that world too, it's 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 about making choices on whether or not you want to spend on that platform versus use that platform. Yeah, yeah. What are the choices you have? though? Well, TikTok. You know, it's funny because my <laughs> my boss and I have had this this long running discussion about TikTok, and I she was a really tough sell on Instagram as a platform for what we do, and I said, yeah, but think it's about laying the foundation. The The future people who are going to use the other platforms are going to learn about us in little bits and starts and know that we've been around and in that world that they're familiar with for the longest time. If we start now, it was about, you know, yeah, laying a foundation. And, uh, you know, when we started talking about TikTok when TikTok started really starting to steamroll a couple of years back. I and mean, she's like, don't even start with me. I was like, no, but eventually we're going to have to talk about it. And so it's been a running gag that, you know, uh, so she just went off on her uh maternity leave uh last week and i was like oh by the time you get back there's gonna be a tiktok channel it's like no not while i'm gone yeah she should uh she should start to uh,
3: you know doing some tiktok videos while she's off <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, no. I told- no it's it's just it's it's silly i mean yeah. but but you know it's kind of like if you're not on tiktok these days your brand just isn't going to get noticed you know it's just that's the way it is like right? you know You got to put stuff up there. Mm -hmm. And, And, you know, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's a, you know, real witch's brew too, right? You know, totally full of inappropriate
4: things. Oh, wildly. But, you know, if you look at the trends right now on Instagram and, and Twitter and even onto LinkedIn and Facebook, which are a little more sort of stodgy. You know, it's all short videos, it's reels, it's you know, it's quick stories. Like, it's, there's, it's TikTok is an undeniable influence across the other platforms. That's just that's the way that stories are being told because it's content creators are creating content and and then flipping it between platforms. So it's gonna have a contamination or influence. I guess is a nicer way to put it, but you know, like it, it's unavoidable. So what was that thing we used to have called? Was it Vibe or? There's a real short vine, video, which was vine,
2: yeah. vine, vine. which was yeah. acquired by Twitter, and then they did nothing oh, again cute. because they don't know how to product manage <laughs> to save their lives. Yeah. they they bought it and then just let it die on the vine, as they say, uh, wither on the vine. It was well, same with Periscope, too, right? Yeah, that seems to have gone the mm-hmm. way of all things. Mm-hmm. They sort of half heartedly tried to bake it into Twitter, and I guess it sort of is in there, but it, they just always had problems that it felt like the company didn't know what in the world it was doing. It's like, oh, uh, yeah. you know the blue check verification, oh, that's not an endorsement, but also over here, these new features are only available for blue check verified people, so it's like, well, it actually is a very not tacit but explicit endorsement of these people because you're creating a class of haves and have nots for your features so Again, if it was properly product managed, they wouldn't have this really weird, fragmented, inconsistent viewpoint. It would be very cohesive and comprehensive.
4: Yeah. Well, it should make for an interesting few weeks, anyways, as we start to see the stuff roll out and what the what the policies are and how they change. Mm-hmm. We learned that the uh, what is it? It's like the Delaware Business
2: Court or something to figure out who they are. They were able to. Pretty much single-handedly bully the world's richest man into fulfilling a contract that he had explosively yeah. signed. <laughs> so, tiny little court was taking none of his nonsense, and uh, I'm sure he looks at it as like, "Oh, well, I decided to do." It's like, "No, you didn't. <laughs> you were kicking and screaming the entire way, and you ultimately ended up fulfilling the contract originally as signed.
4: So, you didn't win here, buddy. You uh, you lost. <laughs> you lost <Yeah>. hard." <laughs> Well, and again, I hope he likes his new toy because nobody else is paying $44 billion for it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, wow. it's not going to get a return on investment on that, I, I don't think. No, no, it, it would be... Yeah, he's a silly person. Really hard. Yeah. Um, so next week, we're down to two things, right? We've just got Andor and Prodigy. That's mm-hmm. right. That's, that'll be a little less intensive. Nice, yeah, yeah. I'll be curious to get your take on that sixth episode of uh, Tales of the Jedi. Tim, jeez, <laughs> it steps mm-hmm. all over that last book. It'll be interesting. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. It tells a, a story that's f- like part of the book, but completely retcons it. And like, mm, mm, didn't that book just come oh, out? Yeah. Is it a little soon for a retcon? Yeah. Star right, Wars: The
2: Multiverse of Madness. There you go. Just put a new sticker. Yeah. <laughs> Print out some stickers. Put them on yeah. the books. It's fine. It's all part of the multiverse um, strategy now.
4: Yeah. Ma- multiverse of madness might have applied when I was watching that last movie. I think I'm going mad. Yeah. Wait a minute, Palpatine's alive again? What's happening?
2: I think this actually exists, but there I think there is like a what if Biggs Darklighter survived? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> that kind of thing. It's like, oh no, everything went terribly wrong. It's, this is the wrong guy. He like kind of needed to take one for the team so all the good things could happen.
4: Yeah, well that's that's a little bit like the uh we watched that Harry Potter play, right? The Harry Potter play basically relies on the premise of uh well what if what if instead of Cedric Diggory dying as he did, what if he lived? And that's a that's a sort of big part of that story, which is really uh yeah. It, it, one of those, you know, the path not taken kind of deals, right? Yeah. <sighs> All, right.
3: All right, kids. Til
4: Til next next time. Time. I gotta I gotta get back to
3: my uh my problem.
4: Code man code.
3: I was working on before.
4: Yeah, that's the ticket. All right, All right. I'm going to
3: end the show. We'll say goodbye. You later. Bye. 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 See you next week, guys. Bye.